Welcome to episode 116 of the Reptile Gumbo Podcast. Uh, we still in our uh, jumble of co-hosts. Uh, Katie's not here tonight, but Megan's filling in. Megan, up, guys? some stinky itch. I don't know. Whatever her life. That, that chick. That was weak. Yeah, that was... That was weak. I was trying not to call you a bitch again. I'm disappointed. I go bitch every time, but... Slap a bitch. Subyaka bitch. Some... Somewhat of bitch. My gamer tag is the Sibiaka bitches. Anyways, she's here. Katie's not here. She's taking the night off. Uh, We had a long weekend. Again, from from last show, tell people how you feel about them. When I say that, I don't mean tell them you fucking hate them. I mean, tell those people you hate them. Feel free. But tell folks that you love that you love them whenever you get a chance to because you never know when you won't. That's about as sappy as I'm going to get a little sappier. I always talk on here how much I love the the Reptile community. I've met some of the, the best people in my life in the community, and one of them is sitting to my right, which is Robert. Uh, I know. It's it's oh. weird. <laughs> I don't say a lot of nice things about Robert, but he did drive four hours this weekend to come to a funeral uh, for someone in our family that he's never met uh, to be there for us, and so that means a lot to me, and I told Robert over and over again, thank Thanks, you. Uh, so, that meant a lot. But, again, tell everybody <clears throat> when you see them, if you love them, you love them. If you don't love them, tell them to fuck off. That's, that works, too. Uh oh, our giveaway. Don't forget our giveaway. It's sitting here above my finger if you're watching on the screen. There it is. All you gotta do is go over to our Facebook page and find the thing that's uh stuck to the top, the little post that's stuck to the top. Go there, post a picture of your membership to US Arc, and you're in for this amazing mandala of a chameleon on a plant. It's I'm telling you the picture and it's it's awesome. You, the picture doesn't do any justice. You want it. Uh, it's going through the end of this month, which is May. Ooh. I get out of school in one and a half weeks. But who's counting? Me, next Friday. Uh, But yes, get in for that giveaway. All you got to do, again, have a membership to US Art, snapshot that, post it on there on that link, on that uh, post on our Facebook page, and you're in. That's it. And Megan can't win, so it's even better. I'm super salty about it. Now that she's a fill-in co-host, she doesn't get to win shit. It's freaking gorgeous, guys. I have a lot of regrets. Yeah, a lot of regrets. That's one of them. Uh, also, if you are looking for, I'm Katie's not here, so if you're looking for a high quality PVC rack or cage, look no farther than Lone Star Reptile Racks. Uh, if you want to. Good enough. Yeah. If you yeah. want to cage or a rack, yeah. LSReptileRacks.com. Get you one. You can pick it up at a Herps show near you.com. I know that's Unless in there Oklahoma. What? Well, you can still get it there. There's still a few left yeah. at the Grant family. Exotics. Exotics. I should know this. They're in, look, Sand Springs, if you're Oklahoma. in bumfuck Oklahoma and there's a reptile shop near you, it's that one. If it's not that one, don't go in it. Go to the one that says Grand Family Exotics. That's right. They have uh, reptile racks for you. Cages still? They may still have cages. I don't know what he sold this weekend. That's true. He sold some at the Amarillo show. Yeah, I just, I don't know what he sold. I need so you to, have to go see what's left. In fact, let me, I need to send him a message and ask him to still tell me what all he sold. <laughs> um, also, I want to give a shout out to... Uh, again, Herb's Reptile Shows, which I have here. I'm going to pull up. I can tell you all of the reptile shows coming up if my computer would work faster than a three-legged gerbil. Oh, the next one is Lafayette, Louisiana, June 4th and 5th. We'll be there. Conroe, Texas, June 11th and 12th. We'll be there. Longview, Texas, June 24th, 26th. Slide out, Louisiana. It's during the summer. I should be there. It's July 23rd and 24th. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 
I will not be there. That is too far. But that is July 30th, 31st. Corpus Christi, Texas. That's August 13th and 14th. Bryan, College Station, Texas. That's August 20th, 21st. And then Austin, Texas, August 27th and 28th. That gets you through the summer. So if you need to get your reptile fix sometime this summer, there are all your herb shows. Make <clears> sure you make it to one. Y'all know that picture of like all the leaves on the ground and there's a copper head right in the middle yeah. and everybody always posts it saying mm-hmm. it gets posted a thousand times every year. Yeah, I can find it immediately. Eight now. or nine years. Some guy just posted, take it in my backyard today. Yeah. <laughs> no, nah, bro. Sure it was. Uh, you're full of shit. <laughs> I always know if someone posts a picture of find the snake and it's leaves or a tree. I'm like. It's in the very it, middle. If it, Yeah. If it's a tree, like up in a tree, I'm looking for a rat snake. Usually. And if it's in the leaves, I'm looking for a copperhead. I'm like, at least try to fool me. Like, pan down and make it up here in this corner or something. Yeah. But our natural instinct is to just take Center a photo it. of right in the middle yeah. of the photo with whatever. Yeah. Every time. It's, and it's usually a copperhead. We get it. They blend in with leaves, guys. That's that's what they do. Uh, also, shout out to the Ruas over at Wiregrass Exotics in Ozark, Alabama. Go over visit them for all of your feeder and reptile needs. Also, check out the rattlesnakes and talk to them. Dallas and Amanda are amazing people. Go talk to them. Also, I want to give a shout out again to the people that made this amazing sign above my head, our Reptile Gumbo podcast sign. That is the Howdies over at Focus Cubed. If you need just the weirdest looking cages, they make them, but they're awesome. I have a little tiny one downstairs with a little pissed off house snake in it. It's not really a pissed off house snake. He's just, she's just always hungry, even though I feed her. And she strikes any time I come near the cage. She's one of those. Yep. <laughs> Hangry. Uh, Todd Sanders said he came home to some beautiful ovulations today. I'm hoping he's talking snakes. I really am. I so I'm hoping that's not a wife <laughs> thing. I mean, if it is, congrats. He's already got like 11 teen kids. I mean, congratulations, I guess. But, I mean, wrap it before you tap it. Just saying, oof, that's a weird way to tell somebody that your wife's ready. He, he only had, I think, four. Four. But that's, that's. He's about to have five. There's a beautiful ovulation at home. So, give it nine months. I don't uh, know why I keep coming back. What? <laughs> not my fault. Todd's the one talking about his ovulations. Uh, this past weekend, what happened? Oh, I know, never mind. I know what happened this past weekend. Our buddy Grant, like we said, had, they had the Amarillo show. That was a Lone Star show up in Amarillo. That was this past weekend. Uh, lots of interesting snakes posted online this weekend. Like the one you sent me earlier with the mud snake. Yeah, that was cool. I didn't even, I need to post that one actually. It was uh, like an anatheristic uh, mud snake. Yeah, it was, it was posted in a, Aberrant, uh, aberrant, 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 uh, pit vipers group, but it is not a pit viper, but it's not a pit viper, but they didn't know what it was at first, but it's a mud snake and it's yellow and white. Really freaking cool. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. And then he was like, Oh, well that would explain why it kept stabbing me with its tail. It's like, yep. That's a mud snake. Todd said no more kids. Then watch out for those ovulations, Todd. Uh, also amazing picture that I posted around uh, this weekend was the alligator guard. Did you see that one? No. It was a melanistic alligator gar. Solid black. There's a lot of new posts in the group. Solid black, full-grown alligator gar. I don't know if we shared that in our group. It needs to get shared over in our group, though. We will. It is amazing. All I've been finding (laughs) lately are really ornery water snakes. James Bregoli, uh, before I say what he said, what he wrote, was one of those that gave in. You were also one of those that gave in to the stupid, let me give all my information to Russia thing. You know, the picture where you change your (laughs) picture to make it look like a cartoon. I don't care. Yeah. What's Russia going to give a shit about me? <laughs> oh, but he says his truck smells like a rat snake. Well, smells like rat snake shit. Because this huge rat snake I'm doing a relocation on is a dick and shit all over its container. <laughs> that's that's what rat snakes do, James. But way to go on saving that rat snake. Don't get bit. Yeah, I've got another one that I'm healing from. I'm gonna oh, that's a good g- bite, too. Like, it, you can see the curve on both. He got me there also. 
But um, the last one, it's going to leave like a really small scar, I think. I'm going to have to get a glove, though, because it, it's been itchy. The last two ones have been really itchy. I'm a fan of gloves. I'm, I'm not a fan of getting bit. I don't, honestly, the bite itself, I just don't really care about it. Like that, I care. The itching that I can't stand. Their mouths are nasty. Fuck, that's gross. I'm not doing it. Nah. Ugh. Anyways, let's, uh, let's get to our, our guest this week. So, our guest this week is Seth Hoffpower. I got it. You got I it. I got it. Of Huff's Herbs. There's Seth of Huff's Herbs. And I'm amazed that we got him on here, guys, because I don't know if you know this. He's famous now. Yeah. Seth, <laughs> Seth is famous. I was playing around on YouTube and watching videos like I do, and I watched Snake Discovery, you know, famous Snake Discovery, and whose face do I see? But the small little man in front of me, that guy right there was on there talking to Emily, trying to get people to buy his lizards, and then somehow tricked her into buying one of his lizards. So that's when I'll know I've made it, if yeah, I ever make it. You get on Snake Discovery. Snake Discovery, okay. Seth, Seth is famous now. and we, we got him before before he really blows up, and yeah. we're too... We're not important enough for him. Please if remember you want the little to people. Get autograph, James. Yeah, I'm gonna get a picture with you, an autograph. I mean, you're <laughs> a hero now. How many, how many little notifications have you seen on your Facebook group, your Facebook page now since that video came out? Uh, it was a, probably a a good extra hundred or two hundred follows on Instagram, like the day of. That's awesome. Uh, and it's it's died down, but I, I've I think I made one sale already since that video from that video, nice. and another contacted me that was like said that he used to be into fat tails years ago, and he has been kind of thinking about getting back into him, and then he saw me on Snake Discovery, and now he's talking about like really getting a big collection once he has the the space to set up for it, and. You know, doesn't sound like a beginner. Sounds like somebody who's, who's yeah. been in the game for a minute. So uh, that might end up being being lucrative. So I'm assuming you recognized Emily when she came around to you at the show. Yes. Okay. Yeah. At this point well, in the it, hobby, she's kind of. I guess. I guess it's well. You're kind of in that age where like you may or may not have recognized her because I think younger than you. Well, actually, I, I was going to correct myself. I lie. I straight up lie there. Actually, I went. I reached out to her Saturday afternoon because I don't do any, I don't consume any YouTube at all. Yeah. And so I went out, I went over there later in the day, Saturday afternoon, because the crowd was ridiculous at that show. Yeah, that was uh, so the St. Louis show, right? Yep, yep. And, and but most everybody there was people, was young kids there for her. And very few of them bought any animals. Most of them were just there learning, and you know the parents were like, "Okay, we're just getting into this. We're ready to research. We're, you know, open to the idea of this." They, you know, they follow Emily on on YouTube or whatever. So, I mean, there was literally hundreds of oh, young yeah. faces in that building there just for her. So you got to see and the craziness so, that is Ed and Emily trying to walk around a reptile show. Yes, it was insane, dude. It's like the fucking it, Beatles. Yeah, it was it was really insane. And so towards the end of the day, Saturday, like the last thirty minutes, their line for meet and greet had died down to almost nothing. And so I was vending with Carl. I looked over at Carl and I was like, Watch my stuff for a minute. I'm gonna go see how long it takes me to get you know, get up to talk to them. And it was like fifteen minutes that I stood in line and then it was my turn. And I went up and introduced myself and was very honest with her. I said, Look, i I don't consume YouTube, so I'd actually never heard of you. I, I checked you out throughout the day today after I saw this huge crowd that was here just for you. And I see that you've definitely created an amazing following for yourself. And I said, you know, hats off to you for getting all these young kids in here. And even though they're not, you know, 
fully immersed in the hobby yet, you, it's because of you that they are, you know, interested in the hobby. And that's what we need. That's what our hobby has to have is right. it, it, it fuel to grow. And that fuel is new, new people, young people that are, you know, as interested as you and I were whenever we were kids in, in dinosaurs and reptiles and, you know, frogs and everything, you know? Um, and so, I, you know, I told her, I said, so kudos, first of all, kudos to you for that. And then, you know, she, she had tears in her eyes and was like, oh, thank you so much, you know. And then and then I, I just came out with it. I was like, so do you do any kind of, you know, promotional deals for 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 small businesses or whatnot? And, she, and she's like, well, we do this and that and kind of rattled off a couple like big time promotional deals, which wasn't, you know, really what I was interested in. And then her husband was like, actually, we, do, we need to do another interview. We need to have another uh, spot to interview tomorrow. We need a third vendor to interview. And I was like, that sounds great. And she was like, cool. You know, we can do that. We'll do it in the morning before the public opens. And uh, and I gave her a discount on that gecko that she got. You know, that was that pretty was, gecko. I saw that. And, and she didn't even, she actually, in all honesty, whenever, I, whenever we got, you know, to the end of the day and she came to get the gecko, she asked me how much it was, and, and I told her, I was like, well, I, I'm going to give you a discount for, for letting me do the interview and getting getting some more f- following for me. And she was like, well, we don't normally charge for anything for that. That's just content for us. And I was like, well, I came to you and asked you for your time. And she's like, we don't want to take advantage. I was like, well, I don't want to take advantage of you either. Like, you know, it, it is what it is. It's, it's a small price to pay for a few extra sales and, and, and a few hundred extra followers. Um, and so... That that was the gist of it, um, and it, I, like I said, I've already got a little bit of a little bit extra following, and a couple of one for sure sale that that's already taken place, and a couple of potential sales that you might end up coming through. So, heck yeah, I man. think it, I think it was a good good uh, interview. Yeah, and you looked out when they walked over to your table. They didn't stop and go, "Oh, forget you. We're going to interview Carl." <laughs> well, they'd, already, they'd already done an interview with Carl, I believe. I, I think uh, so. Yeah, that's true. Carl back. So for those that know, we've, we've talked about Carl. Carl Vargas of South Tex Gex has some of the most amazing leeches uh, you'll ever see in person. Yeah, he does. Insane. Um, I mean, and like you know, it's it's one of those things. There's certain colors in this hobby that people say their animal is, and like lavender is always the big one. Like these things are lavender. It's fucking gray. We all know it's gray. It's not actually purple. Stop fucking lying. But like when you look at Carl's, or go, white. Or they call white lavender. No, that's white. <laughs> or like. like if I tell you Carl's stuff is pink, it's fucking pink. It's like yep. Barbie doll pink. It's like yep. that Coach Whip. Yeah, that you posted. Oh. The Western Coach Whips, which are pink. I need one. No, his lychees are insane. Truly, yeah. top of the game for sure. And, 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 his, and his gargoyles and his seraphs. He, he's, he's got all three species just like dialed in. Well, dialed I was gonna say about the gargoyles, like he was kind of famous for his gargoyles, and he's got that amazing bacon line of gargoyles and all. But his leeches, I think, have surpassed that, and everybody kind of knows his leeches now. But man, those gargoyles are amazing. So, and I know you have yep. gargoyles, but they are—you do not breed gargoyles. I don't have gargoyles. My boys have. Sorry, your sons have gargoyles. My sons have gargoyles. I and and a lot of them. Hi, I mean, you want to be on TV? <laughs> a lot of them. Uh, a lot of their gargoyles are. Either from Carl or Carl's lineage from other, you know, f- fellow vendors that that are in our circle. Um, 
so yeah, they're, they're producing some insane looking animals and, and holding on to a bunch of it, doing it right. They've hung out with Carl a lot, so they don't let anything go for six months to a year at, at least and lets it kind of develop and see to see what it looks like, you know. Yeah, that's not a bad person to have your kids talk to when it comes to trying to figure out how to deal with those gargoyles. Not at all. He has totally been their mentor as far as the gargoyles go, and it's uh, definitely it, – it, I know y'all know the story of you know my boys and their their collection, but I, I I invested in their very first male gargoyle like four or five years ago. I spent five hundred dollars on a tiny little, really nice red male, and since then they've invested all of the the rest of their collection has been purchased by them with money that they've earned and saved up from money that I've paid them for working in my gecko room, and. It's 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 been the best investment that I've ever made in my life because here in a few more years, whenever they're ready to buy a vehicle, it's going to be literally a matter of them just selling a couple holdbacks and you know, bam, y'all got five thousand dollars to. That's spend. that's where I'm at with that's Logan awesome. with snakes. You know, he has invested and invested and invested, and now has about thirty of his own, and he'll be breeding next year. That kid's going to be walking around with more money in his pocket than me most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So his, his yeah. So Seth's problem is Carl. Your problem is Russell. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's why you have so many corn snakes. No, but every time it's like Russell has this on his table, and then that that thing is now on your table and going mm-hmm. home. Right. And I mean, they, they actually have it, gecko for gecko. Their collection is more valuable than mine. I have a much bigger collection, obviously, but they have some geckos that are worth thousands of dollars. That, How old they, are your kids? Thirteen. They're twins. Yeah. That's impressive. 20. That's twin boys. And, and that's animals that they've either produced or bought themselves and grown out, bought as little bitty babies for, you know, a few hundred, and then it ended up being really nice geckos. Or they even have one that somebody gave them that is the most insane gecko in their whole collection. And it was just a buddy. It was somebody that I met online that he wanted to get into fat tails, and I did a trade with him. I did a trade with him for a, fem- for a breeder female gargoyle. And then... The day we were shipping, I was on my way to FedEx, and I was like almost at FedEx, and he messaged me. He was like, hey, you got room for extra animals? And I was like, we make extra animals around here. <laughs> and uh, he's like, well, I'm going to something just, just as a little extra. Cause just because he really liked you know, what they were doing and and you know the, the, the route they were going and everything. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm not thinking anything of it. I was like, well, you know, they'll appreciate anything that you, you, know, that you have to offer them. And we open this box, and it's this tiny, tiny little gargoyle, and he's insane, dude. The first time I showed gar, the first time I showed a picture of it to Carl at the next expo that we went to, he grabbed my phone and went, "Whoa, <laughs> Carl!" It's yeah. a lot to impress, Carl. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. And that gecko has ended up turning out to be one of the most insane gargoyles I've ever seen. And I haven't even posted any pictures of him because I don't want people beat me down for him because I know how that market is and I'm not even trying to have to uh, attempt to turn down stupid money for that because it, it, it was a gift to them so it's something that we can't even sell anyway and they need to just keep it and produce with it and I know how, like I said I know how that market is and I'm not even trying to deal with that right now <laughs> so I don't know to turn down the kind of money that people would probably you know want to throw at that animal it's it's that nice so let's get at what you've got. You've got fat tails. You've got some leopard geckos, but you're mostly fat tails. Um, yeah, we start out. I start out with leopards, and I still, 
Actually, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and she was like, well, uh, you know, I thought you scaled down on leopards. And I was like, no, no, I haven't scaled down on leopards at all. I'm actually going to produce every year. I produce a little bit more of leopards. I started out, you know, with just a, a trio. And this year I've got, I'm going to have about 20 female leopard, leopard geckos going. But mostly at this point, my collection consists of fat tails. I'm probably about 75% fat tails, 25% leos. And your leos Last- started out with stuff that, Sean Gray from the Herb Show because he used to breed leopard geckos and you started out with some of the stuff that he was breeding. Yep, one my very very first uh, high quality gecko actually came from Sean. Um, my actually I got a couple of geckos from him, but uh, some of his his bold stripe lineage is still floating around in a few of my projects. Um, That's but cool. yeah, Sean was actually one of the first. He was at the ex, the first expo that I ever went to, and uh, and I guess that was in twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen. Man, I, I always listen to folks talking here getting to reptiles somewhere after 2010, and I think, fuck, I've had snakes for a well, long time. <laughs> that, reptiles, that's my first time going to expos. I had reptiles all my life ever since I was eight or nine, but my parents weren't ever, weren't ever cool enough to like take me to take cool stuff. Like, and so I always had like mock turtles outside, and then once I was a little bit older, I had a, a green iguana, and you know, everybody. That was horrible. It, that Actually, it was a really cool one, and my parents got me a cool cage to set it up in, and it was, you know, it was actually a legit So you had, like, the, you had the one nice one? Yeah, exactly. Well, when I got her, she was a total bitch. I, when I got <laughs> four-year-old adult, and she was living in a 55-gallon tall. Okay? Wow. And she <laughs> was mad at the world, as you can yeah. imagine. And... Right away, my parents invested in a cage that a carpenter had for a big Burmese or something. Um, he had built for his snake, and it was eight feet long, six feet tall, and four feet deep. Damn, huge room! And I lived in the basement at the time, and so we set that up as one of my walls in the in the basement. Uh, as soon as I, she went from being a raging bitch to once I put her in there, she was cool as hell. Um, Mostly just to me, but she w- it was a totally different animal once I put her in there. I think it's the size. Uh, Seth doesn't have a uh, threatening size to a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> That's, gotta That's gotta be it. So I'm not... I have uh, some crested geckos, but that is... All my, that's all my experience as far as geckos go. So I'm not super familiar with leopard geckos and fat tails aside from the fact that they're really cute but they eat bugs which is why i don't have them because i can't deal with bugs that's but, so like yeah. can you kind of just like talk about i mean what what's your fascination with them like why these particular animals versus like so many other gecko species sure so leopard geckos um I had leopard geckos forever. Uh, I, I used to work at a pet shop when I was young, when I was like 16, 17, 18. Um, and we had, I had a trio or so of leopard geckos back then. And then when I got in the oil field, when I was like 20, I got rid of all that. But um, that's kind of what we started in. I got those again, whenever my boys were about, I guess, seven. Um, and that was just kind of something that I was already into back before I, when I, before I got in the oil field, and then once my boys were old enough to help take care of stuff, I was like, all right, well, I want to get these again, you know? And so we got a couple of those, and that's kind of what set that off. 
with as far as just it being a, a hobby is I got that just as a project for me and the boys to mess with and and the first gecko we hatched was pretty cool and so I got to looking a little more into it and uh, realized there was a whole community and 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 you know everything behind this and got a little bit more involved in it and then and then that's not long not long before I met Sean Gray and you know talked to him my first conversation with him. He, you know, was up with me and told me as far as like the it mattering what kind of involved, and so that intrigued me even more that there was like a, a whole genetic side to things and and a lot to learn and a lot of more of a scientific side of it. And then I think it was my second expo that we went to. I was still trying to invest in a couple of leopard geckos to collect and. There was a guy selling, he was getting out of everything and he was selling his fat tails and he had a couple of fat tails on his table and fat tails have, especially the younger fat tails, certain morphs have a lot of bluing on their tail. And one of my sons was obsessed with blue, with the color blue all his life. And so he really, really wanted one of those. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I'm, you know, I've been in, in, I've been doing all the research on leopard geckos, and, and I don't know how much different these are. And the guy was like, oh, they're not that much different. And I did a little bit of research that as they weren't that much different to keep. And so the next day, I ended up getting a trio of fat tails as well as the couple of leopard geckos I planned on getting that day. And um, I fell in love head over heels with them, personality-wise. Their personality is some of the coolest geckos that you've ever laid your hands on. Um, it... And that's that's truly what's done it for us, and that's why we've focused more on the fat tails than the leopard geckos. Is mostly because of the personality of the animals themselves. They're so laid back, so calm. The majority of them. There's a couple of little assholes that are just kind of you know hiss. <laughs> uh, my worst bite I've ever from from a gecko was from a fat tail, but it, it was my fault. I had other males. You know, they're sent all over me, and I reached across the top of my biggest male to grab his water dish, and he didn't even think twice about it. He thought I was another gecko on top of him. <laughs> um, hey, and so, he's a big hey, so hundred gram. I'm what? I'm gonna be a jerk and pause you for a second. Do you have any headphones? I do, but I can't get them to work, dude. Damn. Okay. And you know, I- no, you're fine. It's the only problem is anytime we make the slightest noise, or if we laugh or comment, and you're talking. For some reason, audio just shuts, shuts yours off, and then and I, it's, I'm anal That's about the, audio because I was listening to podcasts on the way home, and I had to stop listening to some because uh, they have a tendency I, to turn their head when they talk, and then you can't hear them when they yeah drives me nuts. Yes, I get it's okay. that so, a lot about the I was mic. Trying to set up the computer, and for whatever reason, it didn't work, and so I'm just on my iPhone right now. It's fine. That's fine. Sorry, it's cool. We can keep going. So so. Anyway, their personality, that's that's it for me. And as far as the bugs go, that's something that I've just kind of uh, grown with and adapted with as my collection's grown. Um, as far as handling them and dealing with them, I don't like them, but I really can't stand dealing with rodents. So I'd much rather deal with bugs than rodents. So that's why I prefer geckos over snakes as far as that goes. See, I'm the uh, opposite. No, no issues with rodents. In fact, I've even graduated to... I don't even care about just like grabbing them with my hands anymore. Like when I first started keeping snakes, I would use my tongs to get them out of the bag. And now I just, but bugs, <laughs> well, see, I can't, I, I can't, can't do it. I don't like rodents. I mean, that's why I do frozen. You know, I've, yeah. I've got a collection at the size I'm at where 
live would probably make like breeding my own would probably make sense. But when I do the math in my head about my time, it makes no sense because my time is way worth more. It's worth more than what I would have to put into fucking cleaning rat cages. I'm yeah. too much of a bleeding heart. I like I would. Feel, oh, it doesn't bother me at all. I, I Fuck couldn't them. do it. I think they're so. I can't. I, I think they're so cute. I could never be a feeder breeder. First rat to bite you, I guarantee you could feed it off something. I've been bitten by a hamster before, and let me tell you, when that bitch died, I wasn't sad. When so I told this on here before. When so back way back, so some of our listeners will not remember this, but when Walmart used to sell rodents and birds. Uh, they had a hamster one. The guy knew that we had a boa. We walked in one day. He goes, "Hey, y'all want a free hamster?" I'm like, we goes, "Every time I reach in there, it bites us. You can have it." It's a hamster. So we took it home and junked it in with our boa, and it oh did not God. bite anybody ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but that was way back when. It's so weird to think Walmart used to sell hamsters and birds, yeah. and like mud puppies. I remember they always had mud puppies. I don't remember that. I do. You could get mud puppies there. I know that when I was in high school and was a stupid asshole kid, we used to go in there and dump like five betas together and watch them fight. And I, you know, oh, I, what a dick! I couldn't do that now. I'm but. pretty sure there's still like one Walmart left that sells guns Fish. and ammo. It's, oh yeah, it's in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. Which that sounds about right. If you've ever been to Broken Bow, Oklahoma, it makes sense. <laughs> Uh, Darren Watson says, I hate rats too. I'm curious what percentage of reptile keepers hate live rats. Most, most. A- anyone that says they don't has not kept them yet. See, I wanted to keep them as pets, but. You keep them long, long enough to breed about, them, they smell fucking horrible. I feel weird about like keeping the things that my other animals eat, so. That didn't bother me. It was the fucking smell. Like, it's just. And, and, and everyone can tell you, well, this, this isn't bad, that's not But you do this. They're still fucking gross. And then like, or I can't imagine what would piss me off is raising them all up and then walk out one day to find one mama rat who killed all the babies. Yeah, it happens for sure. Mm-hmm. That shit would piss me off. That's when a mama rat gets fed out right away. Yeah. She just graduated herself to feeder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Retired breeder is what we're going to call that one. But so like, I'm, I'm in the middle where I, I don't like insects anymore. And we're going to talk to Seth about insects. That's one thing. I've been talking with him for a while. I wanted to have him on talk about how he does his insects. But I uh, I used to breed my own dubias. But the problem is I'm one of those people that and, – and most people, if they keep them long enough, will become allergic to dubias. It's, I've just found it with most people that they get itchy and stuff. So it happens over time. Um, and so I couldn't do that anymore because I just – I hated having to deal with like an itchy throat and watery eyes and all that stuff after them. And the crickets just smell so fucking horrible. Anyway, You know what my is on the dubias? What? You I mask up. It's people that are less, they're less allergic to the dubia and they're more allergic to the cleanup crew that end up facilitating in the dubia colonies. Gotcha. Think about it. Mealworms are very, very common to get an allergy from, right? Yeah. Well, several clean, several types of the cleanup crew are just types of mealworms. You got your buffalo beetles, which is just lesser mealworm. And then you've got the domestic beetles, which hey, is. Are buffalo beetles small and shiny? Yeah, and the mill and the when they're like millworm, they're millworm shaped as bait, but they are like two a centimeter long, two centimeters long. Yeah, they're really yeah. small. Okay, they're so smaller. They're, they're about the same size as a brand new newborn dubia. Okay, so yeah. a little bit smaller even. I've got those things in my house because my tortoise table. I put um, I put a cleanup crew in there. I put uh, ice pods in there, and I, somehow in the dirt or something that I put in there, there must have been a beetle. And they have done really well. Eggs and and you got the whole life cycle going. 
And unlike the isopods, they can climb out of the tortoise table. And so now I find them all over the, I don't know how all over our house. I don't know how they can get out and the isopods can't. What kind of size is it? Uh, I mean, they're PVC. It's smooth PVC, but uh, the isopods can't climb it. But these little beetles can. And it's fucking annoying. I mean, it's, at least it's a little beetle. And it's not like I have roaches climbing out of the shit. But, that's true. And they're, I mean, they're small. They are a small. They, they, I'm not sure that that's buffalo beetles you're dealing with because buffalo beetles can't climb smooth surfaces. Well, fuck. These things can. And I, and I finally saw the mealworm version of them the other day. So I know that they are a small mealworm to start with. And then they turn into this really shiny little beetle. Is it darker than a regular mealworm? Yes. Okay. Maybe it is less. They mealworm. may be climbing the silicone. Oh, yeah, there you go. In the yeah, corners. In the corners. Yep. But the isopods yep. have not figured that shit out. They're small enough that they don't weigh anything. And so if you got silicone in the corners, that's the climbing. So just put you some Vaseline at the top of each corner. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And that should, that should solve that. Because they can't fly. That, no. That's one thing that I was going to get to later is that's why I prefer buffalo beetles over domestic beetles because the beetles can't fly. Domestic beetles. Those, those are the ones that are fuzzy when they're babies, right? They're fuzzy when they're worms, and the the beetles fly their asses off. People always, and, I always people get them in uh, like uh, cricket boxes, and they always mm-hmm. freak the yep. fuck out. What's wrong? Was it? And it's like, just calm down. It's a domestic beetle. Yep. And another thing about domestics is they're more aggressive. So they'll actually, if the population gets too high in your dubia colony, they will consume your babies as they're being born, and oh, they'll damn. put it. Whereas the buffalo beetles won't do that. So that's a big advantage of the buffalo beetles over domestics. I will say, speaking of dubias and babies, uh, everyone that has ever thought about breeding dubias, when you do it, I need you to be warned the process. There are some weird-ass things you will see with dubias when they give birth. Uh, Halfway through the process, before they give birth, you'll see this thing sticking out of their ass. Calm down. It's normal. They will suck it back in. Wait, so they give birth, they don't lay eggs? They do. So they, they have this... Back. They have this ootheca, which is like this egg sac, an internal uh-huh. egg sac, and it has to get air. So it actually comes out of the female, and it's fucking weird. It looks kind of like a dildo hanging out of her asshole, uh, but it sticks out of the ass, uh-huh. and then comes back in. And then when they're ready to give birth, they actually hatch on the inside, and they give birth to these little live white babies. Like, so and then they weird. just go, and they they brown up, and they look like little kind of like little ice pods when they're little, and then they get roach shaped around fourth or fifth. Uh, Molt. Yeah, I actually think they're kind of cute when they're small, and then they get big. Because yeah, they don't look roachy when they're no, little. We're not, we're not friends anymore. That's how I got big. Katie to be okay with them when I had them. I was like, look at them. And plus, like, I showed her the adults when they fall on their backs. They're fucking stupid. <laughs> so. Yeah, I... I, I uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was intrigued, I was intrigued by Dubia when I first started keeping them. Like, it, it, it just blew me away. The whole, everything about them. Now, now they're just a chore, you know that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I liked. Uh, it took a lot to convince me because I have a, I have, I have a fear of roaches, of native roaches. Like hissers don't scare me, doobies don't scare me now, but native roaches like gross me. Roaches and the and the uh, the big tree roaches. Yeah, the the greasy, slimy looking ones that run really fast and can fly at your face. I don't do that shit. If the word roach <laughs> is in there, I'm not doing it. But especially the ones that fly. Yeah. Or that's what big ass palmetto bug. Ugh. Ugh. Well, that's why I was telling you, like dubias. Like I said, to convince Katie, I showed her when because they'll walk around, they'll fall over on their back, and they're fucking stupid. They can't. 
They can't flip back over, so they'll wait till another one walks by and grab them and then flip themselves back over. And I'm like, look, if they get out, this is how stupid they are. So you're good. And so it convinced her I could, that's what we had them for a while. But uh, yeah, I couldn't what, do it. One interesting thing I always throw at people is uh, that the Doobie Roach, um, uh, they, they, oh shit, I forgot where I was going with that. Way to go. <laughs> ADD. So let's let's get into uh, well, let's hit on the on the fat cells real quick. Um, unlike cause I know a lot of people, Cresties are kind of the big thing now, and and Cresty breeding and genetics is fucking confusing because it's mostly just you have no fucking clue what you're going to get when you breed them together. But with fat tails, that's pretty much recessive gene. Like all this stuff's kind of recessive, right? Mostly, there's uh, I think six recessives, and then there's a couple of there's one incomplete dominant, and then there's another that. I'm pretty sure it's an incomplete dominant, but it's impossible to really tell that it's an incomplete dominant. So the stripe, you'll see the white stripe down some of them. That's a dominant, it's definitely a dominant trait, but it, there's some speculation on whether it's incomplete dominant or just dominant. Because a super stripe, you wouldn't really be able to tell any difference. It would just produce 100% stripes, right? Yeah. So, but they're not, they're not line bred stuff like people are used to with the Cresties. There hasn't been line bred stuff in the past with them. People like myself are starting to work on some line bred projects and having some really good results with them. Um, it's just one of those species that takes a lot more commitment, a lot more time to do any kind of line bred projects because they take longer to mature than a le- as compared to leopard gecko. Um, they take a lot longer to, to mature and they don't they're not as prolific, you know, as far as like babies per female. And they just, they take a little bit more work that the to breed, not as much to keep, you know, just to keep one leopard gecko and to keep one fat tail gecko is pretty much the same thing. But to breed them, it definitely takes more work. You, the, the way I like to explain to people is a lot of people get away with neglecting leopard geckos and it not even showing, whereas fat tails, especially if you're trying to breed them and you're neglecting your collection, it's going to show you real quick. Uh, the animals are going to show you, you know, they're going to, they're going to look like shit real quick. So, for anybody that's watching, you can see Seth's room that he's sitting in. I, I actually got to see that room. Seth was not there. He was being fancy in it, NARBC and Tenley, but whatever. Uh, but his wife showed me around, and I got to see his gecko room, which was cool because I saw a bunch of little baby geckos hatching while I was there. But then I also got to see your insects, and that's kind of what we wanted to talk about, was you've, you've got a kind of a, a great system in place for raising your own feeders and keeping that going. And so, let's get into explain one what you are raising, uh, we've talked about yeah. a little bit of it, and, and to your process for doing it. So if somebody wants to try their hand at raising some of this stuff, some of the do's and don'ts on how to do that. Yeah. So first of all, James, do we have any kind of time limit? Just so I'm aware of. No. Uh, You're okay. good. Well, I mean, right. I, I don't want to be here till nine. I mean, I got, <laughs> the other day I was doing one and we were like 45 minutes in and he's like, oh, by the way, we got an hour limit. I was like, oh, shit. I got all kinds of shit out of it. You know. we, by about 8.30, we kind of like to start our wrap-up because that usually takes cool. 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, and cool. I got no problem telling Seth to shut up. So we're good. <laughs> we're good. So I breed three species of insects. I breed doobie roaches, crickets. Actually, four species because I breed two different species of crickets. So doobie roaches, gray-banded crickets, brown crickets, and mealworms. Um and I've been breeding all of those species pretty much since the beginning of me breeding geckos. Because my theory all the way from the beginning, whenever it was just a hobby, was 
I didn't want it to be a super expensive consuming hobby. I wanted wanted it to kind of be able to support itself. And so I've I've always had that mentality since I first started with the breeding process. And so that's just kind of grown with my collection, the production side of the insects, especially since I went full time in 2020 and started really devoting a lot of my time into production on the insects. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Seth does, does he breeds geckos now full time. This is this is his thing. Nice. Yep, yep. I was in the oil field for 15 plus years and whenever 2020 happened and the whole world shut down, the oil field did along with it and my wife was at unemployed at the time too cuz she was substitute teaching whenever the pandemic started, though so she was one of those few teachers that were not, you know, still getting paid. And so we were sitting at the kitchen table and she was like, what are we going to do? I said, well, I've been investing in this backup collection for, you know, in this collection as a backup plan for the last four or five years, backup plan activated, let's do it, you know? And so I started really focusing a lot of time and energy into producing, like I said, as much feeders as I could and holding back all the right animals to grow my collection. So I, what I, I do have to say, and this is, this, I promise it sounds like a negative thing and I'm making fun of them, but I'm not. Seth is the most anal person I've ever seen when it comes to this collection, and I love it. And I wish I could be half that anal about how well it's organized and all of his detail in record keeping. Because I walked in there, and it's he's got charts on the wall. He's got like whiteboard, and he's got all these symbols, and everything's marked. Well, everything's ready. Sorry, guys. Hang on just a second. Cool. And it's, it's amazing. I just know that I'm not that fucking organized. I can't do it. I'm working on it. I've got I've... – I spent last summer redoing my reptile room and getting it organized, and then it all just kind of, like, fell apart <laughs> because it also doubles as my office. But then I also added, like, several more animals, and so now, like, I've got animals in a couple of different rooms because I need to reorganize my reptile room again, add more shelves so that I can actually get everybody in the same spot. Well, with what Seth does, I think it's one that helps with his kids helping him because his kids do help. But the fact that it's so organized and there's such a system – that he can have his, his kids know exactly when they come in there what to do and how to keep that system going. It's very impressive, Seth. I mean, he wasn't there to explain it to me. But, I mean, I'm just looking at it when I was there, I was like, man, this is this is crazy. So what I'm hearing is I need to find myself some of that child labor. Yes, you need some child labor. Because I don't have any of that child labor, so. <laughs> that, that is your problem. Yes. But, Robert, Robert, you'd seen his room, right? You've seen mm -hmm. It's crazy organized. Yep. Uh one, one day, I dream I'm, of just having, like, a perfect wall of stackable I'm just happy stickers. if my floor is clean. That's really all I'm going for. If that. my floor is clean in my snake room, that's that's a win. That. That's, that's about as organized as I've gotten. Uh, a, a clean floor. Yeah. So, sorry, Seth. I just had to, I had to say how, how impressed I was with how that was. That was in perfect timing. The family just got home, and they were asking about dinner. I, I got dinner going on the stove, so they, they need some instructions on, on <laughs> Um. Uh, so yeah, I'm very anal. I'll definitely, it's, it's, I'd say to a fault, but I, I, I do it in a very productive way. So it's not to a fault for well, me. I mean, it's a business for you. So that works for you and, and it helps your business run even smoother because yeah. you have all of that in place. My overhead is so low because I'm, I'm producing so much of my own feeders. I, I, as many geckos as I have, which is in the two range, including all babies and everything. Um, I'm spending a couple hundred dollars a month on bugs. I, I buy some crickets every now and then and some mealworms every now and then, basically. Um, 
it's it it should be a several thousand dollar a month bug bill, but it's it's literally just a couple hundred dollars a month. Um, the but yeah, the brown crickets. Those are the ones that everybody's normally used to that smell worse, right? Those are the. I guess they smell worse. They 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 die quicker. Yeah. So here's the. Thing I always tell people at the expos, crickets don't stink as much as dead crickets stink. And the thing is, most people go buy adult crickets from the pet store, and those crickets have already been adult for a week. And crickets only have a lifespan of about two weeks once they molt into adults. So whenever you bring them home at a week and a half into adult stage, they're already on their way downhill. Even if you do everything right and have them fed and watered and at the right temperature and all that, they're still going to die on you. And so that's part of the reason I breed my own crickets is because I find it easier to just have a, a accordion or assembly line style of of crickets to where I can always be feeding off of that older batch. And if a batch starts dying of old age, then I feed that whole batch off and move on to the next batch. And so I don't have mass casualties on my hands. So therefore, as y'all experienced in my garage, it doesn't smell like cricket stink, even though I have millions of crickets in there yeah. because they're all alive. Um, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, could, I couldn't smell them at all. And I'm used to the smell of dead crickets because I used to order. That was always the, the kicker. Like, you can order a box of a thousand adults. Well, unless you're feeding Seth's collection, you're going to lose like 800 of those by the time you can actually feed them out. See, and that's, exactly. that's good to know. I mean, I, I don't keep anything that eats crickets, but I've had people ask me about feeders before. And I have seen people, I see it a lot in groups where, yeah, people will buy like these mass quantities of crickets and then talk about them dying. And so that's interesting. I didn't know that they, they only live like two weeks as adults. As adults. Well, wow. Yeah. Adults, they only live about two weeks. Their whole lifespan is only about 10 to 12 weeks, and that all depends on how what their temperature is while they're growing. The higher temperature, the higher metabolism, the quicker they're going to grow, just like any bug. That's any insect. Interesting. Um, but, yeah, they, they don't have a very long lifespan, especially once they wing out, which is that final mold where they develop wings. Um, but even still, even if you buy half-inch crickets, for some reason, I don't know if it's the stress during shipping or whatever, but for some reason, I have a whole lot harder time keeping alive crickets that are shipped to me, even if they're not adults, than crickets that I hatch and grow out. I don't know what that what that's about, but I can several thousand medium-sized, you know, half-inch crickets, and half of them will be dead before they're adults. Whereas I can hatch a couple thousand crickets in a batch, and I can grow most of them to adulthood at this point. Um, so I don't know what there what there is that with that but definitely something there interesting oh i thought about that cool fact about the doobie roaches i was gonna mention earlier james that i, that I based out on yeah I found it. you mentioned being afraid having a phobia of like german roaches and you know the the cockroaches that are in your house and that are you know, we associate with being nasty and the, what i always explain to people like moms that are trying to open their mind to getting into this and the way i ease their mind is if you think about it, roaches aren't gross as a species. Roaches that we associate with being gross are gross because of where they go, yeah. not because of what they are. In other words, those roaches that are in a household, they have to have a water source. And what is that water source? Our drains and our toilets and our nasty areas of our house. And so they get all that on their feet, and that's why they carry these diseases that they do. Whereas a colony of dubia roaches that is in my house... Uh, actually, Sean Gray has eaten a doobie roach in front of several of us before at, at an expo. Yeah, uh, 
you can literally eat them. They're sterile. They're in a sterile environment. If if a colony is kept properly, they're in a sterile environment. There's no bacteria or anything going on. There's no mold going on. Dying, and so it's a whole different organism as far as sanitation goes. A friend of mine actually posted a video a few days ago. Um, she and her husband, they breed isopods and deal with a lot of insects. And um, she actually posted a video of one of their roaches grooming itself, which I thought was super fascinating. I am still like, it'll be a cold day in hell before I ever touch one. But I mean, I thought it was super cool. I mean, I briefly held on to some dubias that I was taking for a friend and I gave them some water and I just, I thought they were super cute drinking water out of this little like cap that I put in there. And I'm like, you guys are so cute. We're not going to be friends, but this this is kind of cool. You know, like I never had, for some reason, I just had never thought of bugs grooming themselves or like never did that ever cross my mind. Speaking of bugs, it's a fucking gnat. No, they're they're interesting for sure. They're interesting bugs for sure. They're very they're very good feeders for without a doubt. I was I was apprehensive about them at first. I'll be honest. Whenever the first time I was offered some dubia roaches, the it, the guy actually gave me a cup because I was like, no, I'm not messing with roaches. And he gave me a cup, and I put him on my rack on on top of my rack, and I forgot about him. And I found him like months later. And most of them were still alive. And that's what really opened my eyes to them. Is I was like, man, these things are durable. Like, there's no way a batch of crickets or even a batch of mealworms would have survived without pupating to, you know, for that long a period. And so that's one thing about them is they're very easy to care for. They're hard to kill. You know, so if you do it right, you set it up right, they're a great feeder source for any insectivore. So what's your basic setup for your dubious? And how do you, uh, I'm assuming you split them out by size. So how do you do that process? So it's similar to a lot of people, like my breeder colonies are similar except for one aspect of it. So most people just use the egg crates vertically and that allows any frass or poop to dry up and fall down and collect on the bottom. Um, and then th- what I do differently is I have my egg crates in the back, you know, the three quarters of the, of the tub. And then in the very front, I have some smaller egg crate or shorter egg crates that I have set up with a piece of flat plastic on top of it. And that is kind of my feeding and watering area that instead of keeping it all the way on the floor like most people do. Yeah. And I find that keeps it a lot cleaner because the bugs aren't just hanging out there. They come up there only to feed water and they don't just hang out there and they also don't die there as often. So you get a lot cleaner feeding area that way. Um, and then for harvest, which I do, I try to, I have three colonies. And so I try to harvest them about every other week, one colony. That way colony is left alone for about six weeks. Um, and that works out pretty well. I get pretty good production that way. And for harvesting, I just get an equal size tub next to it empty. And I just shake out each egg crate with a respirator on breathing protection is very important. Um, I shake out each egg crate into a big tub and then, they're all dumped in a bucket system that I have uh, some acrylic inserts in there that have the different size holes. So it's descending hole sizes uh, from three-eighths all the way down to, I think, an eighth inch and a couple sizes in between. And, Robert, you've uh, made several, several things like that for for people that breed dubious. Yep. And they, they sort themselves. They naturally want to get out of the light, so they fall out, you know, as small a hole as they can find. And uh, 
that sorts them out for the majority, and then I put all my adults back in the colony, and then I basically just have one grow out tub for mo for all my feeder size dubia, and that's just a thirty two quart like tall tub like I keep my crickets in, and that I harvest from about once a week to move them upstairs. And you saw did Carrie show you my different sizes upstairs? How I have them in no, the different no. So downstairs I have all my bulk bugs, but then upstairs I have four different six quarts at the bottom of one of my racks. And those are not on heat or anything. There's just a six-quart six tub with a small little egg carton laid down flat in the back and then a food and water dish in the front. And those four so those four tubs are for the four different dubious sizes that we use in our collection. So we have, I call them A, B, C, and C+. So the A's are for the newborn geckos. The B's are for the, you know, just started to two-month-old geckos. The C's are for the two-month-old to six-month-old geckos, and then the C-pluses are basically for the adults. And those I replenish about once a week. So there's constantly fresh dubia coming up here, and that's the dubia that we focus on gut-loading regularly and keeping fresh gut load in 24-7. The rest of the dubia I just feed chow and water gel just because they're just growing. I'm not worried about feeding them to my animals right now. Um, that's one, so of that's the big things, one of the big things for you is – is gut loading. We've talked about that before, and yes. and it will come up again in, in our question. We'll talk about our question for the week. It got mentioned several times. But gut loading is a big thing for you uh, that most people just don't do. And I know I've been guilty of it when buying crickets from PetSmart and just coming home and feeding them out. Um, and we've tried to remedy that some lately when we're feeding stuff. But go ahead. Yeah. No, gut loading is, is literally, if you've ever vended next to me, you've heard me talking about gut loading way more than you'd like to. Because every every family that walks up to my to my table and goes, oh, I have a gecko at home, uh, it's it's a it's a me almost a mechanical conversation for me now. The first thing I ask them is what they feed their gecko, and that's just to open the conversation. You know, whatever it is, ends up being dubia roaches, crickets, or mealworms. I then ask them what are they feeding their bugs, and about eighty to ninety percent of the time, no shit, I get a blank stare. Yeah, and they're like what? Uh, maybe 60 70 percent I don't know I, I might be exaggerating there but it's it's the majority for sure people have no idea what I'm talking about and that's when I grab my care sheet and hand it to them and show them the section about gut loading and quickly give them a rundown on the gut loading because that's something that even if they're not getting a gecko from me I can give them a five minute conversation and it's carrying knowledge home to them that's gonna greatly improve the life of their gecko because here's the thing Everybody talks about supplementation, supplementation, supplementation. If people would gut load right, you wouldn't even necessarily have to supplement. At least for a for a keeper just having a pet gecko, you wouldn't even need to supplement most animals. If you're gut loading properly. Now, as a breeder, obviously we need to gut load and supplement to cover the whole spectrum. But there's just so many people that are missing the step there. And it's not their fault. It's just... Very, very undereducated. It's there's too many breeders that are eager to sell a gecko, or breeders, keepers, whatever, eager to sell a person a gecko and take that money, and eager to give them a care sheet that says it needs this temp, it needs fresh water, and it needs these bugs, and don't take a second of their time to teach the person the most critical and honestly, in my opinion, the hardest part about keeping a, an insectivorous gecko is keeping the bugs and taking care of the bugs and giving the bugs the proper nutrition. And that's where people are failing at. And it's something that I have 
taken upon myself anytime I have the opportunity to educate people that I run into about. So we've got a few questions from the chat. Well, first off, James Broly says at the Herp Shop, they gut load their crickets at the shop. That's one thing that they make sure to do before they sell their stuff or their feeders at the shop. Some people, some people will tell me that as their response, and I still stand strong with them and say, well, that's great that you're getting from a good pet shop that gut loads, but you can still do more on your part. Well, you take those animals, those crickets home and put them in a bin and put them with some fresh veggies, and that's still going to be better than bringing them home and not giving them anything. Well, Todd Sanders asked, what vegetables or fruits are best for gut loading? So I'll give you my regimen, my personal routine that I use is dark leafy greens, which can be kale, bok choy, collards, mustard greens, turnip greens. All of those keep pretty well in the fridge, pretty much in that order uh, as far as how long they keep. Um, And then in addition to the greens, because some of the bugs, especially the roaches, don't eat much of the greens at all. Um, Spaghetti squash is one of my big go-tos that has one of the highest calcium contents of any vegetable. I don't remember where I learned that from years ago, but check me if I'm wrong on that. But I'm pretty sure that's one of the highest calcium contents of any vegetable you can get your hands on. And it has a very high moisture content. So the bugs are drawn to it because they need that moisture source. Uh, They'll eat the hell out of it. I've never had a bug turn down spaghetti squash. Um, Other squashes are good too, but spaghetti squash specifically is really good. Um, and then sweet potatoes and carrots are my other main go-to. So a lot of people tell me they, they feed potatoes and I just encourage them to, to omit those potatoes and use sweet potatoes instead, because it's just as easy of a food source. They keep forever in the cabinet, but it has a lot more nutritional value than a regular potato. Potato is just moisture. Yeah. That's just, um, that's the, that's the old bait shop cricket box thing was, was a big old chunk of carrot in the bait box when you went to get crickets for fishing. Yeah, big old chunk of potato or a piece of carrot. Um, but yeah, that's my main go-to. It's spaghetti squash, carrots, sweet potatoes, and dark leafy greens. And I actually do, I think I sent you, I don't know, it was somebody else I was talking to about gut loading yesterday. Um, my my mealworms, that's one thing that's kind of tricky to gut load because you don't want to get the bedding all wet with those high moisture content veggies. So what I do with my mealworm is I take the green and kind of dry it off if needed. And then I lay that on the bedding, and then I put my carrot and sweet potato and spaghetti squash on top of the green. And the bugs are naturally drawn to those wetter veggies first, so they're going to go up and get access to those wetter veggies and consume those rather than those wetter veggies sitting on the bedding and just emitting moisture into your bedding and creating a, a possible mold situation. And less is more, especially with the mealworms. Try to get it to where you're giving them just enough to consume in a 24-hour period. That way it's all getting consumed and you're not having old veggies sitting there having the potential for mold. So Darren Watson asked, what is the average lifespan of a dubia? Uh, To my research and knowledge, six to nine months to get from newborn to adulthood. And then once they're an adult, supposedly the males live for about a year, which I'll kind of definitely back up with that, that they don't have a longer, as long of a lifespan as the females. Um, and the females supposedly live for one to two years. Yeah. Uh, like 18 months is what I was. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I researched when I first started messing with them. And I'd say I'd probably go along with those lifespans now that I've been working with them for several years. Um, as far as watching a whole colony go from brand new, you know, creation to peak. And that's the thing is they have a, they have a, uh, a bell curve, you know, they peak out on production and they start going back down. 
And some people don't even mess with them once they go on the down on the downswing, and they'll just freeze the whole colony out. Have you ever had this issue? I had it happen, and I've heard other people have it. Where like your males, all of a sudden you have you had a bunch of males. It happened to me. Yeah, and then your males just kind of die off, and then you have a whole pile of females. Lifespan. That's what that's what I'm saying. I, I will agree with the fact that males have shorter lifespan. Because think about it, if you create also the males reach adulthood a little bit quicker than a female. If you have, you know, the same size doobie as a baby, the males are going to molt out to adulthood a little bit quicker, say on the six month end, where the females might take more like nine months to molt out to adulthood. And then they have a shorter lifespan as an adult. So if you have a given batch of brand new babies that you grow out and they all go to adults, then you're going to have adult males dying off, you know, six months into your females being adults. So it's important to, it's it's always important to have a higher female to male ratio because you don't need a lot of males, but it's also important to make sure that you're replenishing those males with fresh males because exactly that, that you'll have a lot of males, you'll open it up and be like, man, there's a lot of females in here. And that's, that's definitely a problem. Todd Sanders says, what's an easy way to keep crickets longer in small amounts? In small amounts? Uh, breed your own. Honestly, uh, I mean, if you only have a couple of animals, it is such an easy process, and it doesn't take much space. Um, and it. What's your setup for that? The setup for that is literally one standalone rack. You saw my rack in the in the garage, my cricket rack. One rack from Lowe's that costs about forty five dollars, and each shelf has a line of tubs on it. Um, I have heat tape on the back of my rack. That way I can keep it rolling in the wintertime. If you can have it in a climate-controlled room, then there's not necessarily a need for the heat tape. They do like higher temps, and they grow faster at higher temps uh, and hatch faster at higher temps. But basically, breeding crickets is probably the easiest. Yeah, out of the three, it's probably the easiest to do. It The hardest part of crickets is keeping the babies alive. Because the little bitty pinheads, if they dehydrate, they'll die in a matter of hours. So it's really, really important to stay on top of the hydration level of your babies and make sure that they're not dehydrated. Uh, and I just do that with water gel. I, I do water gel about once every 18 to 24 hours for my baby crickets. Um, give them a fresh bottle cap of, of water gel. So it's just a matter of being committed to it and, and doing it regularly and just having it as part of your daily routine uh, as far as just checking them. Um, as far as just buying crickets and keeping crickets, your best remedy is to get away from brown crickets and go with gray-banded crickets because they are more hardy species, period. I've seen um, those more I, and more at shows now. Mm-hmm. It's because people can buy boxes of them several days before the shows and they're not selling boxes of half-dead crickets at the show. Because the crickets just are hardier by nature, um, they don't get as big. So I don't. I, I keep both species because I like the brown crickets. I can feed an adult fat tail six to nine brown crickets as opposed to nine to twelve gray banded crickets, which with a hundred plus animals that you're feeding crickets to adds up quickly. Those extra three crickets a piece, you know, three to six crickets per animal that you have to feed. So I prefer the browns just for their size, but. As far as somebody that's just keeping a few animals and just trying to keep a few crickets on hand, go with the gray banded. They're quieter, they don't chirp as loud, and they're hardier. And and Lainey, who we had on last week, says she has her cricket set up the exact same way you explained, and it works great. So. Yeah, and so for my cricket tubs, my adult cricket, 
I just have egg cartons standing in the back for them to climb on so they don't suffocate each other. And then water and food in the front, water gel in a bottle cap, and food in a bottle cap. Just dry chow. And I just use that Fluker's Cricket Chow for most of them. I add some dog in the mix for the grow-outs, not my feeders. And uh, some Dubia Chow once they get a little bit older. And then to get them to lay their eggs is super simple. You just give them... A, they'll hold their eggs until they have the right spot to lay them. So if you don't have, if you just have a dry cage, they'll hold all their eggs. And then once you give them a small cup of humid substrate, they will go and inject their eggs in it immediately. And so you put a humid cup in there for 12, 24 hours, depending on how much you're trying to harvest, and then pull that cup out and put it in. What I use is the little uh, portion cups, the same little cups that I incubate my eggs in, little five ounce, five ounce portion cups. And like from a brown crickets, because they like to dig the dirt out, I'll cut the center of the lid out to make kind of a, a escape proof, kind of like the the escape proof feeder dishes that oh, we yeah. use in the hot. Uh, that way, when they're digging in there, they're not kicking new, they're not kicking pre laid eggs out of the dish. It's it keeps everything contained a little bit more. But the adult crickets can get out in and out of there, no problem. Yeah, well, um, crickets are a weird one. If you people have ever held one, you can always tell a female because they have. That weird, long, pointy thing on the back of them called an ovipositor. Yep. And that's what he's talking about. They, yep. they lay the eggs into the dirt. And it's that thing that people always go, this cricket bit me. I'm like, no, it just pokes you. That thing is hard. And it will poke you with that thing if you're not careful. And their legs are pokey, too. Sometimes yeah. you just get the legs. Yep. But, yeah, they'll lay their eggs in there. And then I remove it. And I put a lid on it and put it on the shelf. And in two weeks, it'll be hatching. And once they start hatching, put it in a six-quart tub. And the crickets have to leave that cup to go find their food and water that you provide for them. So then at the end, you know, after several days of it hatching, then you end up with a tub full of crickets and a cup full of dirt. And you just remove the cup and you have your cup, your tub full of crickets that you don't have any substrate to separate them from. That is way easier than I thought it would be to raise crickets. Yeah. It's so simple, dude. Like I said, the hardest part is comes after that. Keeping those babies hydrated. Those, Those baby pinhead crickets until they get, I don't know, a quarter inch or so, they are so delicate. If they're without water for just a few hours, they'll start dying. I had a batch just this morning that I was that I had to separate out a bunch of dead from because I had yesterday I slacked them, taking care of my babies, and I had a whole batch or half a batch die off on me. Um, luckily, I've got plenty of others, so it wasn't a huge hit. But, hmm. uh, yeah, th- that's the hardest part is keeping the babies alive with the crickets. So let's get to but our it- question for the week real quick and run through. Cause we got several answers. I posted on several groups this week and we got uh, a lot of answers, but uh, the question yeah. was, go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, go, do the question. I was going to say, I got some, I posted it on my page too. And I got a cool couple of cool answers on there too. Yeah. I have that pulled up also. It says, what is, um, what is the most overlooked or least talked about husbandry topic in reptiles? There's a lot of things that people harp on a lot, a lot. Um, and a lot of times it's not really explained that well. You know, we always tell, I think calcium is one of like, Got to give calcium, but no one really explains the other parts that have to go with that, which some of the lighting things that people talk about in here, and then there's different types of calcium. That's one I can think off the top of my head. But we'll go through several of these. Our, our buddy Drew over at the Learnings who said, uh, and this is a big one, using actual research to inform your keeping, looking up studies of what they eat in the wild, activity patterns throughout the year, the climate, the vegetation, and their wide uh, wild range. Don't just go off of what you've been told and try uh, and try to find sources uh, for the information uh, the, uh, you work with. So for the species you work with. Uh, research, though, is one of those things that 
unfortunately people aren't going to do because that involves uh what's that effort effort Effort. that's what it is effort yeah like so freaking hard these days right to just type something in your phone and and have it at your fingertips yeah it's amazing i tell my students all the time effort is free it blows me away how lazy people are you know effort's free and you'll find that the more effort you get effort will overcome lack of ability almost all the time and you'll find that the more effort you give the more ability you will gain uh but the problem is people are just lazy and they want to hand it to them. And, and that's another problem. That's what forces, that's what drives a lot of these arguments on social media is they heard the one person tell them that one thing or they read it in one place. And that now is the only thing they believe because they don't want to put forth the effort to find any other information. So, yep. uh, Sean Gray said he, uh, also seconds that he came to write that in a second that, uh, Daniel Cruz said obesity, people talk about what to feed, but they never talk about overfeeding. The number of obese reptiles is skyrocketing and terrible. We talk about it. You know, uh, we tend to focus a lot of times on underfed animals, especially like bearded dragons. That's an easy one. You can always see that hip bone and all. That happens a lot or iguanas and all. But you'll see folks with fat ass tegus or fat ass Burmese pythons all the time. And uh, that's a problem too. It's the same with dogs. I mean, we, we, we don't. People always worry about the commercials with little starving dogs, but they think they're wonderful with their big round dog who's going to die five years early and have hip problems. Yep. But, but that's still and, bad. And it's almost harder to get the weight off of them once they get obese than it is to put the weight on a malnourished animal. Well, and it's because and we've talked about like, before the, it, the fat on reptiles is different than mammals. You know, we, we get fat and we get a fat belly because the fat forms on the outside of our muscles and we can try and work it off and all. But for these guys, the fat forms underneath all of that and it forms on yep. the organs and, and, and forces a lot of pressure in places where it's not supposed to. And, you know, by the time they get really obese, you've really ruined like their liver and a lot of the other organs in there. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Scott Borden said hydration. Hydration's a big one, uh, especially for those high humidity animals. People always freak out about high humidity animals, but I think if, if they had enough water, then that's the humidity. They can be a little like I've, I've got rainbow bows, the adults. I don't keep the cages super humid, but they have a huge water bowl and they can always get water if they need to. And they don't, they don't dry out. So hydration is more important to me than humidity is not just enough water, James, but also enough fresh water because a lot of people mm-hmm. have a big water bowl, but they only change it out once every week or two, even some people. Whereas anytime water for more than 72 hours, it's considered stagnant. Yeah. So really, if you're not changing your water out every, you know, twice a week, you don't have fresh water all the time. You have fresh water for that first three days of after you change their water. You know what I mean? And that's where a lot of people are, are not necessarily hitting the mark as well. Um, Holly, Christine. As far as hydration goes. Yes. Holly Christine said stress and how to make your reptile feel more comfortable in their new environment. Yeah, everybody has that. Uh, they bought a new reptile. Like you see at reptile shows. They buy a new reptile at a reptile show, and then they walk around the show holding it. And I'm like, yeah, don't don't do that. That's mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen it with chameleons before. They'll, yeah. they'll walk around with this black chameleon. I'm like, it's not supposed to be that color. Stop that. How many times we've had the? Oh, I bought a snake at a show and I took it out in the car. Now it's in my car, my dashboard. I, I don't get that. I see those posts all the time. I'm like, what possessed you to do that? Right. Keep it in the because it's a brand new toy. They got to play with the brand new toy. It drives me nuts when people treat their reptiles like dogs. I'm like, can look your bearded dragon doesn't give a shit. 
that it went to the grocery store with you, leave it at home mm-hmm. in its enclosure with its proper heat and light. Yeah. Stop it. But <laughs> freaking out that have no interest in reptiles because that's not doing any good for the hobby no it's like you're just you're you're making us all look weird and granted yeah we're weird but they don't need to know that i was making a delivery to a pet (laughs) store back in the winter time when it was about in the low 40s and this girl pulls in in a convertible with the top down in the 40s with a baby ball python around her neck oh my god i got it you're gonna kill that snake at least it was on her skin and getting yeah. some kind of... Well, and, and so those people fall into a couple of different categories. There is the person that does that purely for the shock value, and we know that with reptiles. There's so many people that get into reptiles purely for shock value. They don't tend to last, and they tend to have lots of animals die. They tend to be the one that goes, oh, yeah, I had a python, and then I'll tell you what kind. It lived for six months, and, and yep. then it probably just like froze to death. It was a 12-foot red tail, right? Yeah, right. yeah. 12-foot <laughs> red tail reticulated python snake. But, yeah. but uh, so there, there are those. Then there are the ones. Look, this girl that brought the ball python to the store may have thought she was doing a great thing. She loved her animal. And she wanted to take it out and be with her. But that's another thing of research. You need to understand what the animal needs and not what you need. There's two different. If you need a companion, a fucking dog. Get a dog. That's snakes are not companion pets, and I don't care what anyone says. They're not. You can love them, and they can make you feel good for having them. But they're not a companion animal. They are not there to travel with you no. to places and do all the stuff you do. If you need that, a fucking dog. That's that's what dogs do. They're companion animals. Buy you a little tiny chihuahua and have a fucking ball with it. But please don't please don't buy a chihuahua. They're terrible. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, barely even a dog. Thank I, you. Yeah. I can't stand them. <laughs> it's that's a mistake that nature would not have made on its own. Yeah, uh, step away. I'll be right back. Go ahead. Uh, my computer is freezing up. Here we go. Uh, Megan, oh, you wrote, you want to go ahead and do... Yeah, I mentioned UVB. I feel like that's a big one because, one, not enough people talk about it in general, but then most people, when they do talk about it or, like, the different, you know, care sheets that are out there, none of it's really in layman's terms. I feel like it's super intimidating to new keepers because they look... I mean, I know... Even now, like as an experienced keeper, I don't fully, completely understand the the UVB explanation sheet in front of me. You feel like you have to have a science degree yeah. when you're reading it. Mm-hmm. There's just really not any... Yeah, when it's giving out percentages and words yeah, that aren't... they don't... Yeah. You know, people don't understand. Like, I had no idea at first that, you know, putting my UVB light on top of my screen versus under my screen was going to affect the output. Yeah, I didn't screen know blocks that. a certain percentage. None of that popped up in any of the research that I did. I didn't know that. Well, every until... picture of it is it on top of your screen. Yeah, kind of, yeah, exactly. I had no idea about any of that until um, it was actually when I was fostering that iguana and I was talking to this guy in an iguana care group and we got to talking about UVB. Um, and he started going over all of this and I was like, this makes so much sense. And I feel like a terrible reptile parent that I've gone this long, <laughs> not realizing this um, because the information's just not there. Yeah. Well, and that's my, my go-to when someone wants to know about UVB is Ryan McVeigh. We've had him on a couple of times. He's been on several hundred other podcasts. You can find him and he will talk to you about UVB until you tell Ryan, I got to go. Um, See, and actually, I I thought of them, too, when I was writing that comment, because um, a few months ago, 
uh, Becca of the Learning Zoo had posted, they uh, she and Drew took in this sick chameleon last year, was in really bad shape. And the first thing that they did was give it proper UVB using one of the VivTech bulbs. Yeah. And Drew said, I mean, within a couple of days, it had just started completely <laughs> turning around. And she posted a picture of it a few months later and somebody who assumed that they knew a whole lot more than they did saw her bulb and immediately started assuming that she was using coil VB, UVB. Yeah. Um, and starts. Which, by the way, is not a not bad. Ryan will tell you Ryan, they're perfectly fine. Well, yeah. and but this person, of course, then starts trying to educate Becca, who's a zookeeper. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, about about the UVB and I had to go in there and go, you know, listen, this is there's there's a lot of new ways to do things. Well, and that stems from not doing research. That whole yeah. that whole coiled UVB thing stems from like one batch of bulbs mm-hmm. early on in the beginning of using coiled UVB that were bad. And then since then, they have fixed the problem. And now coiled bulbs are fine. And even better now are the LED ones, which when Ryan first came out with his LED ones, they're like, well, LED bulbs don't work. And now you see all the other companies coming out with LED bulbs. I've been using theirs on my tortoise and I absolutely freaking love it. As soon as my linear UVB is time to be replaced for my Euromastics, everyone's getting switched. Yep. To the oh, that's what I'm doing. Bulbs. Yeah. Our computer froze. Seth, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm okay. working on getting my phone charged. That's Sorry. fine. As, as long as audio-wise you're still there, the, yep. the screen can still freeze for all, all I care. There were several people that mentioned UVB. On some of these, some of them talking about like crepuscular stuff, like uh, and that's the great thing with the the uh, the LED bulbs. Well, the first batch, there were several different versions for that that setup, and there's other ones for the crepuscular that need very little early morning or, but now with the dimming ones, mm-hmm. and with a meter, you can get that dialed in perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and like that's the other thing that I learned after you know doing more research on the VivTech bulbs too was with a lot of the linear bulbs, the setups that you see, they've got you know, UVB stretched across the entirety of the enclosure. Mm-hmm. They don't need that much UVB. It should be a spectrum very much like in the wild. And again, that goes back to doing research of how do they live in the wild, looking at their habitats. I mean, that's where you get people who think that bearded dragons don't climb things when they very obviously do. If you do a two second Google search of pictures of them in the wild, you can see that they're climbing. Um, and also, just in case y'all were not aware, they do not live in Barbie beds Are you sure? or Hammocks. live on tile their entire lives. Yeah, yep. I'm not a fan of the tile. I thought, just in case you weren't aware, I didn't know that. They have natural hammocks. Some people go out and they hang them in the wild for I guess. Uh, other topics. See, Dax Ron's like, uh, cleanliness. Cleanliness is a big one. Um, that corn snake cage is not getting any cleaner over there because Katie hadn't cleaned it. So he's about to get moved into my snake room so it can stay cleaner. But, yes, cleanliness is a thing. I've been into uh, some people's reptile rooms. And I'm guilty of this early on uh, when I did the whole hoarding and getting everything I wanted and then getting overwhelmed. I would got to the point where I just didn't go into my reptile room. And when you'd walk in, there's a, there's a smell. If you've ever been into someone's reptile room where they have not cleaned and they don't take care of stuff. And it's – I always tell folks, it's not that they don't – care about the animals and that they're a bad person a lot of times you just get overwhelmed and they it's just so, stop. it's so easy to get overwhelmed yeah you, you know? just stop going in there you and you don't stop going in there on purpose it's not like a i'm not going in there but going in there becomes stressful and so just you you stop going and then things get worse and then it piles up 
So if you've ever been into a person's room, there is a smell. There's a certain smell that a dirty reptile room has, and it's every dirty reptile room has that smell. Um, so cleanliness is, is a big thing. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know, my biggest motto that I always say every, pretty much every podcast I'm on, whenever people ask me what my best advice is to new breeders or new new keepers getting in, start small and grow slowly. Yes. That's the most important thing because if you don't do that, you will without a doubt get overwhelmed. It's so easy and it happens so often. Well, and I got to talk about with Seth's collection, him being very anal with the way he keeps everything. That's why it stays clean because because if he wasn't organized, he's got a large collection and he could get overwhelmed very quickly. But yep. he's got a, a, an order to everything and it makes it very easy. Once you once you get everything ordered in, in the way you need it, it becomes very easy to clean. It's you know? a few hours a day. A few every single day. Actually, I, I can take a few days off a week, but pretty much every day I do at least one or two racks. Now, yesterday I was feeling lazy, so I didn't do any. So guess what? Today I got four racks to do instead of two. But after I do my one more rack today, I'll be caught back up. You know, so I, I don't understand people that like have a big collection like mine and try to do it all on one day. Yeah. If you have to, because you have a full time job that's sixty hours a week and that's your only option, that's one thing. But in that case, I don't think you should have a collection this size, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, that I, I guess that was, in my opinion, I feel like if you have a, a high demanding full-time job, you need to limit your collection size to what you can afford, to the time you can afford to give it, you know. Uh, and that's a big mistake a lot of people make is, is just getting in too deep and getting too many animals just because it's so easy to do. And then they get that overwhelmed feeling. Um, I try to keep all of my stuff staggered, like as far as like, you know, spot cleaning on certain days, full cleanings are usually, you know, maybe split between two days on a weekend or, you know, one weekend I'll take care of all the juveniles the next weekend, all the adults. But my, my rule is if you I have a lot of animals between reptiles and mammals. And when you walk in my house, the only reason you should know that I have animals is because they're going to maul you when you walk in the door. You should not exactly. be able to tell I have animals because you can smell them. Exactly. If I can Thanks. if I can smell animals in my house, I will not sleep until I figure out the source. Yep. No, that That's one thing that I pride myself on is whenever you walk in my gecko room, it doesn't smell like a gecko room. Mm-hmm. Even though there's 200 animals in here, it smells, I mean... It smells a little. So there's gonna be a smell, but you know the difference between yeah. just animals being there and dirty animals being there. But it doesn't smell dirty. Yeah. You, yeah. You smell nasty. It doesn't smell. I mean, unless I forget to take the trash out one day, it, it you know it's it's just because we have a daily routine. Mm-hmm. Maybe constantly getting taken care of the adults. I have nine adult racks, and like I said, I do about at least two racks, and so that lets me just have a couple hours of dedicated time to those adults and then the way i do that is every adult rat gets taken care of about every five to seven days and so that is a good schedule for me and that that's what works for me um again everybody's different every collection is different every collection size is different everybody's schedule is different but that's what works for me yeah it's yeah if you do a little bit every day go in there throw a podcast on or i have a tv in my room so i can go throw something netflix on and and i can do some work and i also uh, feeding, I try every now and then it, it ends up happening. I pull, I pull rodents for everything, but I try to feed 
things are eating like pinkies and small mice on one day and things that are eating yep. adult uh, mice and large rats on another day. Just so I'm not having to feed everything and then come back and check everything. And then mm-hmm. I mean, makes it easier on yourself. Yeah. I tell people too, like, you know, try to try to keep your animals in a place that you are you have to go into often. Like my, I, I work from home. So my home office also doubles as my reptile room. So at least five days a week, I know that my animals are getting attention because I am literally right there and they are staring at me as I'm working. Um, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, unless I'm in there cleaning, I'm probably leaving them alone for the most part. Um, but at least five days a week, you know, they're getting some kind of attention versus if I put them in one of my upstairs bedrooms that I hardly ever go into, you know, it's going to be more likely that I might forget to to take care well, of them when, when needed. I always tell folks, anytime you walk into your, if you have a reptile room, like if you have one cage, still, it still applies, but definitely if you have an entire room, every time you walk in just to walk in, do something, mm-hmm. uh, change a couple of water bowls, spot clean something clean a tub or two, but do something. If you had time to walk in there, do one thing. And then those one things that you do each time will build up and, and you'll have the whole room. will stay clean. So anyways, let's uh, get through this. Uh, will McCready said ethical breeding practices. There are far more sulcatas and retakes, et cetera, produced than there are responsible homes for them, which is true. Um, I'd love to breed sulcatas one day only for the, the fun of doing it, but I'm not going to. So I'd much rather breed like uh, redheads and, and something like that. Um, or Redfoots. 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 Cherryheads. I got Redfoots. I got it. We're good. I caught on. Uh, Carl beat us to the punch. He said gut loading. So, but he knew. He knew. He's, he's next to you long enough to know what was coming. Yeah. He's on the inside scoop. I, I, I called him out too. I found cheater. Uh, Toby Flick said, for me, people don't talk enough about how their diets change from hatchling to juvenile to adult. I feel like I've got the hang of it now, but I see a lot of overweight reptiles because they are being fed like younger reptiles, which happens a lot. We've talked about that with snakes. People don't talk enough about, yes, you're feeding this once a week, but in two years, you're not feeding it once a week. Stop that. Or you see it with bearded. All right. When they're little, they're going to eat lots of insects, but as they get bigger, you need to transition them over to veggies. Like they're going to eat some leafy greens and stuff. And a few insects. So, you know how often I feed my twenty-four-year-old ball pythons? Once a month. Once every six to eight weeks. That's about right. Yeah, yeah. Well, the female doesn't even eat for about four months out of the year, so she really only gets about four, maybe six rats a month a year. Yeah. That's Wait, a- you you see my snakes? I yeah. did. Super healthy. Super healthy. I mean, they have that. They are have every bit of weight that they need on them you mm-hmm. know my adult bows get a large rat every three to four weeks right now i'm trying to get some of them a little uh heavier for breeding season so they're getting it a little more often but when it's not when they're ever off they're off for a year in between it's every like three or four weeks and like, it's a large rat and so like there's no lump once the thing goes in it is just it's a, it's a regular size meal for them yep that's all, they, that's all they need especially if they're not breeding if they're just a pet that, that's the other thing that people don't consider, I think, a lot of times when they're giving advice is they they pass along, a breeder passes along their feeding regimen for their breeding animals, and they're, they're passing along that information to a keeper that's only got a pet that's not putting out that, that extra output. Yeah, that's and that goes all, also with the research too, but that's also be part of the breeder's job is to provide the proper research for them, uh, you know. I don't try and sell a Sambo to someone based on how I would put it in a rack. I don't go, all right, this is the size shoebox tub you need to slide into. 
Right. I go, look, this, this is the size cage. These are the things you need. Um, a lot of people get upset with, with rack people because, we, well, you sell it and then you sell it to them and tell them they got to do this. I don't ever tell them they have to do it like a rack. I don't ever tell them they have to do it like a breeder. They're not me. They're not someone buying one Samboa does not have a hundred snakes. That's not right. the same thing. So I'm not going to sell them that way. Same as how you feed them. You're not going to feed them the same way if it's not a breeder. Um, Josh Lucas said UV lighting and how, how and why they needed to be replaced on a schedule. Uh, not just when they stop lighting up, which is true. Uh, unless you get a VivTech bulb and then that thing can run for at least four years. So I'm just saying, uh, get you a VivTech UVB bulb. That long? Four uh, years? At least four years. I did the math, like replace it. Like if I replaced my linear bulb, linear bulbs on schedule for the next four years at the cost that they currently are, which I mean, they average like about $40 a bulb, depending on where you get them from. Um, compared to one bulb over four years, the savings was a few hundred bucks. If, you know, if, if my, if I wind up getting the life out of, out of my VivTech bulb that, that they say I probably will, then yeah, it's, it comes out to a few hundred dollars. Plus you don't have the fear of what's putting out light. It must be putting out UVB. If, if the LED bulb is on, it's putting out UVB. So far, that's how it's been with Ryan's bulbs. Oh, and there's like a 33 wattage difference between the two. Oh, yeah, a huge wattage difference. So far less electricity. That expiration date on the timeline, that's probably only because that's how long the technology's been around. Yeah. He probably hasn't even seen a bulb fail yet. He's just seen at least four years of productive, uh, you know, uh, of productive activity on them. You know what I mean? I'm guessing. I don't know. So that's that's my big thing is I, th- those bulbs I think are amazing and, and more people just got to find oh. out about them. That's great. Uh, Megan Tanner also is a UVB thing. She said, recently been researching on UVB lighting for nocturnal and crepuscular snakes. I've been told that they do not need UVB lighting, but after digging more, I've also found that it's beneficial for them. So I've decided that I'm going to go ahead and buy a UVB bulb for my boa. Now just waiting for her big enclosure to be finished and shipped. I've never been one to say UVB is not good for an animal i have i have said there are certain animals that can be done fine without putting a uvb light i don't put uvb lights on my samboas i don't they're fine we had um on the pint size reptiles podcast we had mike stefani from mike's monitors who has been breeding monitors for a long time very successfully and he uses absolutely no uvb light on any of his monitors but he supplements them diet wise to make up for that and that's yeah. the old school way, and it's worked. And I'm not gonna tell tell him he's wrong. He does he's bred stuff that most people haven't. So there there are, again that is where there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I'm all for skinning cats. So find your way to do it. Well, you think about like I mean baby tortoises, for example. If you think about the way that they live in the wild, you know, as babies, they spend the majority of their time hiding. Yeah, they only come out to eat, and so it's you know been suggested that maybe. Yes, UVB is important, but it's maybe not as important for their development as, say, higher humidity um, because they spend most of their time in the dirt unless they come out to eat. Well, so. And Huff's got lizards that I'm sure you could use UVB on these geckos, but they do just fine mm-hmm. without the UVB on them. Yep. And that's what I always tell people is they don't need it, but absolutely they could benefit from it. I'm not going to ever tell anyone that something can't isn't going to like that they can't benefit from having UVB, you know, at their, at their disposal. But I wouldn't take an, 
a bell albino leopard gecko and put it in a cage with no hides with UV, UV blast in 12 hours a day. That's going to be a stressed out gecko that's not going to eat. Yeah. So you have to have some common sense along with it and make sure that if you have a crepuscular or nocturnal animal that hides most of the day, they have lots and lots of very dark hides if you're going to have UVB blast in that cage. And I'm not going to uh, give them the same UVB bulb that I give my Euromastics. Like, they're not going to get the same bulb. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm actually using the Shade Dweller bulb for, for my tortoise. And, yeah, the the uh, Euromastics one, I think it's mid, Midday Blaze, blaze yeah. they're calling it, something like that. Um, and, the, and they're, I mean, one of the... I like the way that VivTech does it because you've got three options. Yeah, they don't they go it, desert, jungle. Yeah, what, they like, make it very easy to understand. They even list out the species that, you know, are most common for that kind of UVB output. They, it was seriously the easiest experience. Well, and there's makes sense, and Ryan's explained it. it. It's When you say, this is a jungle bulb, okay, that's great. But this animal from the jungle is nocturnal. And this animal from the jungle is diurnal. <laughs> yep. They're not getting the same UVB. <laughs> So, yep. uh, but anyways, so that was, that was them. And then, um, let's see. Oh, this one said, uh, that all heat sources should be plugged into a thermostat. Um, that's one thing that everyone needs. That, that does not get explained enough to people that they need a thermostat. So many people out there don't understand what a thermostat is. And we've talked about it before. Some of them, they hear thermostat, they think thermometer. Yeah. Um, so that is, I've seen some bad burns on some animals. I've seen bad burns on animals that had it plugged into a thermostat and the thermostat just wasn't in the right place. Right. Yep. I, I dealt with a customer just, I think yesterday, the day before that I sold the gecko two weeks ago and still isn't eating. And I, you know, my text conversation, everything seemed fine. And finally I was like, all right, we need to talk on the phone. And I got on the phone with her and I, I went through how her thermostat was set up and she had the whole suction cup probe set up and she just had it on the side near the bottom of the cage. So she was reading ambient temps and so her surface temps were like 110 degrees. Yeah, full blast. For 92, and she had the probe an inch or two off the surface. And so, you know, fortunately, it wasn't the kind of temperatures that were cooking the gecko, but he definitely is stressed out right now. And so I had to go through with her explaining how to set up the probe on the actual heating pad and not in the ambient temp area. You know, simple things like that. I've seen them. The probe in the tank taped to the heat pad, and then the ball python pulls the probe off the heat pad. Yep. And then the heat pad yep. cranks all the way up. Yep. You can put it inside, but you're running that risk of it getting moved around. You're yeah. safe with it either sandwiched in between the undertaker and the glass, or taped with some good foil tape on the center of the undertake heater. That's the safest options. Uh, this person said surge protectors. Surge protectors are important. But that's for everything. Any electrical thing in your house, I would suggest a surge protector. That's especially when you're talking like four hundred dollar, five hundred dollar thermostats. Also, uh, back you... to well, that's a good point right there. Four and five, five hundred dollar thermostats. Back to thermostat on everything. Not all thermostats are created equal. No, you can't go buy a bunch of twenty and thirty dollar thermostats to run a room like I've got running here, and then bitch when one of them fails and all your animals die. Okay, you skimped on the most important and critical part of your whole collection. Yes. That that runs everything. That's the one spot that I will not even think about skimping on, and I buy the best quality I can. I personally use Vivarium Electronics. 
Spider Robotics, from what I understand, are equally as, yeah, as a, superior. It's, it's Ford or Chevy, basically. But I, I'm yeah. I'm a Herbs Tech guy. Everything. <laughs> it's what I started with, and so I stick with it. Um, but it, it's it's apples to apples. Yeah. Um, they're very cost you know comparable too. So it's really doesn't matter which brand you go with, but you just need to go if you have one cage, then you can get away with maybe the thirty dollars thermostat. But I still wouldn't recommend it. I was still I still recommend to my customers spending the sixty to hundred dollars on an entry level nicer thermostat from a better brand because you get what you pay for, mm-hmm. and literally the most critical part of your whole setup. Yeah, that's that's if you're if your thermostat clicks on and off, it's not a bad thermostat, but you may not want to run it for an entire collection like that. I mean, I used a ton of those on-off thermostats, and they are fine in certain situations, but long-term, it's not going to be your best option. A proportional exactly. thermostat is your best option. And look, you buy one thermostat at $110. That animal lives for 15 years. I think it's probably a good investment for $110. And especially when you're thinking about how much of a fire hazard you're reducing by spending that that more money on the nicer thermostat. Yes. So. Yep. All right, let's get to uh, some other stuff that's going on lately. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is a certain article that got written, and I'm sure Seth knows about this because he's in the same oh, groups God. we're in. Uh, so there was an article written by, I'll go ahead and put her name out there, Madeline Agler. I don't know. That's somehow how you pronounce her. I don't, I don't give a fuck. Uh, she came to the Austin Herp show, apparently. I did not see her there, but she was there. Well, you may have seen her, but that's she was walking around with a thing on that said, "Yeah, I'm a writer for Texas Monthly," and yeah, yeah. So she wrote an article for Texas Monthly, um, which <clears> I now I don't know the the I don't know what Texas Monthly is, but I now know that they don't vet stuff very well. Uh, it says it's easy to buy a snake in Texas, maybe too easy. That's the title. That title right there, to me, as someone who does shows, sets me up for going. This person's not going to like the the expo she went to there's, she's going to have issues. Um, and, and we'll talk to Megan in a second. Cause she read it a little differently. And it's, it's, but basically she did interview several of our friends that do work the shows. Uh, the, apparently she did not quote the stuff correctly or all of what they said. Several of our friends have said that, um, what she harps on over and over again in this article is that it costs $75 to buy a rattlesnake. Okay. At that show, I'm sure there was a rattlesnake there for $75. That is the price. Uh, but also at the show, there were humans in charge of selling that rattlesnake who talked to the other humans who wanted to buy that rattlesnake. And they were made sure they were informed purchasers before selling them that rattlesnake. So it wasn't, you can just walk in. A kid can walk in and grab it and head out. That's not how that works. Also, there are safety things. And it's, there's a whole lot involved. She did not take the time to either A, she took the time to find out about all that and didn't give a shit, or she didn't take the time to find out about how that really works. She just walked by a table, saw a rattlesnake for $75, and she harps on it over and over again in this in this article. Um, but one thing that – there was a couple things that stuck out to me. She goes through and she starts listing the prices of certain reptiles and, and animals, which not really necessary for the article. But she lists the price of all these different ones. And then she finishes that paragraph with – not so much because of the amounts of themselves, but because it seemed wrong that the necessary that the same currency I used to pay for my groceries and streaming services could also be used to purchase a scorpion. I don't understand the point of that. 
I don't think she understood. It could also be used to buy a car. It could also be used to buy beer. It could also be used to buy drugs. Fucking else. I mean, whatever. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. What the fuck that line was for, other than to try and say they spend money on reptiles. Well, of course we spend money on reptiles. You spend money on something too. I'm sure there's some stupid thing she likes that I don't fucking like that she spends money on. But I'm not going to write an article about how bad it is that that happens. Anyways, so that happens. Uh, and then she goes on to talk about, oh, where's the line? Uh, about how she didn't feel a connection with the animals. Uh, the people there did, but she didn't feel a connection with the animals. And I've got to read this from her because it comes off what? Stephen Howdy. I hope she doesn't ever realize there are rattlesnakes outside for zero dollars. That sure would be scary for Ms. Designer Jeans. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I got, uh, hold on. I got to find. It was like at the very end. It was at the very end. It's yeah. It, it comes off um, creepy. It comes off creepy. Oh, well, uh, there are two other big things about it. She quoted and interviewed people from PETA, which, in case anybody hasn't, and I know if you listen to this podcast, you understand PETA is a terrorist organization who hates all animal ownership. Even though she in here basically says that they, they and the Humane Society. Uh, don't like exotic animal ownership, which is fucking bullshit. They don't like any animal ownership. They don't want you to have a dog or a cat. Um, so that right there, there goes any proof that she gives a shit of about truth when she starts re- asking PETA and USHS. I also, I also thought it was really interesting how she tried to tie the uh, rattlesnake roundup g- guy in yeah. with that. How yeah. The fuck did- We're not the same people. No. So she talked about... because. At that same time, there was a rattlesnake roundup in Texas where a guy handling a rattlesnake at the rattlesnake roundup, which no one who properly knows how to deal with reptiles would have done, he gets bit and he dies that weekend or whatever. That's not connected to us at all. That's like that's like saying, uh, I don't know, someone shoots somebody, right? They got in an argument, they shot somebody, and then trying to compare that person to a deer hunter because they both own a gun. <laughs> it's not the same fucking person. Like They didn't do the same yep. thing. They're not there for the same thing. Uh, this line got me. Um, so she, she she quotes our, our buddy, Sean Gray. It was a great quote. And then her part at the end is fucking bullshit and makes no sense. Like a lot of this article. Uh, Sean's Gray's quote was, a lot of these kids running around, they're going to be con- conservationists and biologists, which I agree with Sean. You can't get someone interested in animals and wildlife and nature unless you show them <coughs> animals, wildlife, and nature. So, yes, a lot of these kids, like myself, who became a biologist, is because I got to see these animals firsthand. So that was true. She says, that theory didn't hold much water uh, with the person from, I think it's the Humane Society, that person, Leahy or whatever. It was. uh, Who pointed out kids are fascinated by dinosaurs, but no kid has ever seen one. Uh, that one, that particular <laughs> line did throw me for a loop. I sat there looking. I had to read that one a couple times. Like, so I don't there are understand people whose point. job is to dig those motherfuckers out of the ground. They've fucking seen the bones. They've seen them. They fell in love with dinosaurs, which they hadn't seen. They had seen pictures of. They had seen videos of because we showed them that they existed. They grew up. They continued that education, and then they went and studied dinosaur bones out in nature, and they found them. So it doesn't make sense. I, I mean. We all grew up like, – if you ask most reptile people, we grew up loving dinosaurs. Most of us love Jurassic Park. Like that yep. is the epitome Absolutely. of – and that drove us into reptiles. A lot of us watched Steve Irwin, and that drove us towards reptiles. If that shit wasn't there and we didn't have it, 
we probably wouldn't be where we are now. So that doesn't make any sense. That line is stupid and it makes no sense. Oh, I found the line. Okay. So, uh, this was one where she was talking about somebody walking around and had a ball python and the person allowed her to put the ball python on her shoulders. And she talks about how she did not feel any connection to that ball python, which is not going to happen because you already don't like these animals in the first place. I can see that by what you're writing here, but this is where she got fucking weird. She said, nor did I feel any emotional tug toward those animals as I have with every dog I've ever met or even just seen in a picture. It was difficult for me to understand the draw of a pet you have to handle so delicately when my own favorite game to play with my dog is one in which I chase her, tickle her, and then bury my face in her soft belly and hope our two bodies will eventually fuse into one. That's fucking weird. (laughs) That's like some fan fiction shit that you don't want to read or meet that person because they are fucking their dog. That is messed up. No wonder you didn't like the snakes, you fucking weirdo. And when a reptile person calls you a weirdo, that's going, that's... That's, I read that and I was like, there's no way she wrote that and then put it out for other people to read. But she did. It's in there. She... Fucking... Oh my god. That was the weird... Like, there's a whole lot of weird shit in there, but the... That's fucking weird. The wording. Just the wording of that. That poor dog. What she does to that dog in private. That poor dog. <laughs> um, but then she also ends it with uh, talking about how she uses the line when so, to, to talk to people about how much would you guess a rattlesnake costs? Because she has to go back to that because she's so amazed that rattlesnakes are for sale there. But I'm like... Yes, they are, but there's a lot of other stuff that was for sale. That's one animal there, and you also didn't actually. She interviewed uh, Elise from E Squared, mm-hmm. but but barely. I'm sure barely said anything. Elise actually told her because Elise is very educated, especially. Well, I, didn't even, I, don't, I didn't. I don't think it was. See, Elise. It wasn't. Elise, was it not Elise? It was her, uh, her assistant. Uh, oh, it was her assistant. I, I saw E Squared. Mm-hmm. So, um, but. <sighs> what the were whole- there? Two, there were probably two vendors there selling rattlesnakes. Yeah, they were in the same. They were right next to yeah. each other in the back corner. Building plus vendors, mm-hmm. and that's what she harped on was yep. that over and over again. Um, so yeah, that that article is blatantly out there just to try and make us look worse than they are, as if they need fucking help um, with that. I mean, I re- I just I, it pissed me off, especially it pissed me off because it was written about a one a show that I was at. It's written about the Herp shows, which I feel very very strongly about the herp shows and how great they are and i i love sean gray to death absolutely um and then to quote people i know and to quote them in ways in which i know that is not how they meant what was said i it's just anyways horrible horrible article be very careful who you talk to um that's why it's it's very hard for us to talk to the press because you shit like that happens yep you know you would think somebody showing up that's going to write Oh, look at this. Look at these kids. These kids seeing these animals, the smiles on their faces, these families there getting their first pet reptile and how great that's going to be and the passion that that's going to bring. And none of that got mentioned. None well, of that. Well, that's just a perfect example of the media twist on things, dude. Yep. Yeah. The article wouldn't have been nearly as interesting to the majority of the people that read it if she hadn't embellished everything like she did. Yep. You I know? think, too, like, I mean, just, just on in- that... I think we can all agree that reptiles are a they're a niche. It's it it is. It's it's a special niche and it is one of those things where if, if you're not into reptiles, you you don't get it. You exactly. if if I didn't keep reptiles and I walked into a reptile expo, I would not get it. If you asked me 15 years ago, 
when I walked into a reptile expo, I probably would have told you, I don't understand why anyone does this. Because at, the, the at that point, I wasn't keeping it. I hadn't kept, I hadn't caught the bug. Um, so. Such a thing as a cat expo. Me and James would die in that thing. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Cats. So like, look. Oh, they, I hate, they've I hate, got cat shows? They do have cat and shows. And those things are fucking weird. My old vet used to oh, do cat do shows. Them? Yes, they, they do. do. They're weird. And, and I've always said how much I hate cats. But I've never said people shouldn't own cats at all. Exactly. Because if you want to own them inside in your house, have at it. That is your thing. You can do that. My problem is when you bring them out into nature and then they fuck up the nature that I love. But again, there are plenty of things I don't get. Like I don't understand the love of craft beer because I think all beer tastes like piss. It's disgusting. But if you want to go to a place and try all different types of craft beer, fucking do it to your content with your flannel shirt and your funny beard and using words you don't know what they mean, but you just got a thesaurus. Do that and feel special. But you don't have to sit and write an article about how much you fucking – you could tell she hates it. She hated being there. See, yeah. I, I didn't really I didn't take it that way. And I I would like to preface this by saying I'm not sitting here saying that I thought it was a good article. Frankly, I think her writing sounds childish in terms of did this person and actually slight, go to school? There's some slight bestiality there. <laughs> but I I fully prepared when I first saw the article pop up on my phone. I immediately went on the defensive. I was fully prepared to be completely raging by the time I got done reading the article. Um, and surprisingly to myself and apparently several other people, <laughs> I, I wasn't raging by the time I was done. I definitely had a few points in the article that James has touched on that I also had issues with, particularly talking to PETA because I fucking hate PETA. Um, but I just... I told you, James and I talked about it earlier before the show, and I think part of the reason why I probably didn't take it the same way is because I'm not a breeder, and I don't sell animals. I absolutely love the Herps Expos. I love the hobby. Um, but I think I look at it a little bit differently because I don't sell animals. Um, and also, I'm not one of the people who was interviewed, so I didn't have to sit there and read this article and sit there and think I didn't say any of that. Um, I can absolutely see how somebody would be pissed off by being completely misquoted and, and having their words taken out of context. Um, you know, it to me, it was somebody who was completely unaware of what a reptile expo was. And if you're somebody who's not involved in the hobby and has never seen a reptile beyond, you know, what is in a zoo... Um, yeah, it, it can be a little shocking at first to see the kinds of things that are available that people keep as pets because it's just not something that you're involved in. Um, I mean, even when I started keeping, there were a lot of things that I ne didn't even occur to me that somebody wanted to keep a rattlesnake as a pet. When I first became a keeper, it, I was sitting there going, why would anybody want to do this? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been doing this for a few years now, though, so I'm, you know, I'm more invested in the hobby. I'm more educated. And even though I will probably never keep hots for me personally, that's just not what I want to do. Um, I fully understand why somebody would want to keep bush vipers and things like that. But that's why. And 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 I I know that it is very difficult to educate people who are already going in with a bias 
But that's my problem. Is the article was written with an yes. obvious bias? There have been, yes. I've seen I've seen Sean do tons of oh, interviews with oh. people. Go ahead, Seth. He walked in with a bias. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've seen tons of interviews that Sean has done on the news and stuff before a show with people that have never been to that. Mm-hmm. But they interview him with this idea of, all right, I'm still open to being here and this whole thing. They don't walk in with, uh, I'm going to make sure I'm going interview, to interview you, but tell everybody how negative it is, which is what I got from that, especially when the woman from the Humane Society basically told Sean he's a fucking idiot what you just said is not the, true. The, the PETA and Humane Society bits, those were the those were the two bits that I found the most problematic about the article because I didn't feel that they added anything Um to the well, they subject, added, they added to her. Well, I was gonna say, yeah. I didn't feel like it, it wasn't necessary for the article. You're writing an article about a reptile expo. Why are we bringing in, you know, why do we feel the need to bring in PETA instead of talking to more people who are involved in the expo and getting a little yeah. bit more education from somebody with that background? But just like her comment about the rattlesnake roundup death, how does that apply at all? To her experience at the expo, right? Because yeah. any of us at the expo hate the rattlesnake roundups. Exactly. But exactly. I think a lot of people, though, and going back to if you're not involved in the hobby, there's a lot that you don't know. I I don't think that a lot of people who aren't involved in the hobby they don't know that most of us hate rattlesnake roundups. And I agree, but it's her job as a journalist to have asked somebody that if she's going to oh, write absolutely. about that in that article, ask Sean their views on that and, 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 and express that. So, but anyways, oh, let's, I did want to on one more thing about the dollars. <laughs> so the way that I actually took that instead of like her just thinking it's completely bizarre that somebody is spending the same currency. I kind of took it more as I can't believe that I can go to the grocery store and spend like $50 on food but I can also take that $50 and go and buy a snake. Like, I think it was that's, more the shock of, but I think that's how really, you would, this is how little it costs? And I would think that if it weren't for the rest of the article that painted the whole thing in a negative light. Yeah. And it felt like that whole paragraph was to help get you in the direction of these people are spending money. It's so cheap to get these things, these horrible, dangerous things. These people shouldn't be able to buy it. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, it was definitely a disorganized article yeah. from my perspective. Um, and the bestiality part was kind of turned off. Anyways, so moving on to uh, our, our quick view through our discussion group. Uh, a couple things that got posted. You posted the, the Billy the Exterminator guy. Um, go watch that clip. You'll realize how stupid some people can be. I posted a cool picture from uh, Critchlow Alligator Sanctuary, who we had on the podcast at one point. And it was their, uh, like their, their, their baby pool and all the babies out in the sun because it's finally warmed up there in the frozen north where they live. Uh, you also posted this book that you brought here today, The Reptiles I, of Trans-Pecos, Texas it's by Michael awesome. S. Price. It does look pretty amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. If you are on Instagram, go look up Wild About Texas. Um, shout out to Bill Bradley. He's actually the reason that I know about this. Um, but Michael Price, he runs um, Wild About Texas on Instagram. Um, he wrote this gorgeous book, Reptiles of the Trans-Pecos, Texas, um, it's basically a guidebook to every yeah, reptile in that region of got Texas. Got a long-nosed snake. I want to find a long-nosed snake. Full, full-colored pictures. Um, it, it's only seventeen dollars plus shipping. I couldn't believe that, how cheap it is. I think with shipping, I paid like twenty-two or twenty-three dollars. And if you're um, a rattlesnake person, he's got all these rattlesnakes and, in I here. I mean, and... he has 
everything in this book. It's incredible. Well, and the cover too is like this nice, like yeah, it's a nice book. It's, yeah, it's it's very well worth the money. Like I would have paid thirty. $30 for yeah, it's a nice book. Uh, Travis posted a few things. He posted uh, an article about the Musorana eating a, uh, a uh, what can I think, a lance head, which I think was that, that kind of that video that got posted around for a while. And then he posted, I haven't read this, but I need to go read it. It's a visit to Riverside Reptiles, Reptile Encounters for Kids. He talks about it. it's a president, uh, positive press towards reptiles after reading that last article. I'm definitely going to go read this at some point to feel a little better. Um, there was a new frog named after a certain type of cryptocurrency. That's interesting. Oh, Katie posted this floated around several tortoise groups. It was the Jurassic Park. A guy had built a Jurassic Park entrance gate yes. to go into his tortoise yard. So I cute. saw that one. I love it. Uh, that was kind of cool. So maybe when we get a house at some point, we may do that. Um, Travis also posted a picture from the African Snake Bite Institute of a harmless common egg-eating snake and the common night adder, which is dangerous, which is deadly, side by side and eerily similar to those two snakes live in the same place which is crazy um interesting what else was posted oh the cassowary you might see the northern cassowary picture i've seen i've worked with double waddled cassowaries which are the southern cassowary i've never seen a northern cassowary that's a that's a crazy looking bird go back Mm -hmm. dinosaurs you can see where birds i I, uh i definitely would not want to be standing there when it came walking up that's what i'm thinking i'm like that person's standing right next to it and that thing can fucking kill him Mm mm-hmm I've been in with with crocodiles, and being in with cassowary was probably the most nervous I ever was being in with an animal. Just knowing that this thing can kill me. This bird that is basically eye-to-eye with me can kill me. I feel like... Death by bird would be fucking embarrassing, yes. I feel like gators are more predictable than birds. I'm not a bird person. I think they're really pretty, but... The bird is also much faster and can jump. Yeah, and they they like fly at your face and I don't... Well, the cassowary can't fly at your faces. Can't fly. Like little birds can't. I just don't do that. I hate those birds. There's also an awesome uh, series of pictures that Nathan posted of a cottonmouth eating a snapping turtle, baby. That was a cool... That was a cool pic. That is really Mm -hmm. cool. Uh, And then I felt bad for this little box turtle getting... (laughs) mosquito on his nose just sucking blood out of his face i was like that poor mosquito um oh this, this one this this cartoon reminded me of something you posted once it's a person throwing this turtle into the sea and the tur- before he sinks he says i'm a tortoise you moron and then he sinks and dies uh you've had people before release yes. uh tortoises into the like rivers yes i have <laughs> not all turtles are created e- equal uh, i posted the the thing from uh seven the, the unboxing video. Mm-hmm. It's still too <laughs> soon. It's still too soon. I... Um, trying to see what else. Oh, there's an awesome... Nathan posted an awesome skeleton of a cobra. Someone articulated a cobra skeleton. That was great. Going through everything real quick. Oh, there was the one with the duck trying to go across the pond of crocodiles. It did not work out for the duck, by the way. If you watch the video. There are some monkeys that are also jumping across it. They do make it. The duck, not so much. Um, da, 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 and then someone posted an awesome pink coach whip. You're welcome. It is really Western coach whips are very pretty. It's so cool. They are very pretty. I need to do more research because I need that snake in my life. And then uh, did you post that picture of the gar? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if you go check it out, cool. the melanistic alligator gar, that thing is amazing looking. It is crazy. Uh, yeah, that's the run through. Okay. Uh, Seth. If people want to get a hold of you, I mean, now they know how to because you're big and you're famous and all. But uh, those people that haven't watched <laughs> you yet on the internet, how can they get a hold of you and, and buy one of your awesome lizards? Uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Morph Market. Huff's Herps on any of the three. Um, that's the best ways to get a hold of me. 
Yeah, and if you want a fat tail gecko, definitely go through Seth. He's done the due diligence of having a high-quality collection and selling high-quality babies, and you're not going to be disappointed if you get one from him. I've been in that little room. It's amazing, and the babies are cute when they come out of the eggs. Um, also, reminder, above my head here, don't forget our giveaway. So go over to our Facebook page, find the pin post at the top, uh, go ahead and comment with a picture of your U.S. ARC membership. Again, if you are listening to this podcast, you probably have a membership, but spread that to other people you know. Anybody who owns a bearded dragon, a leopard gecko, a corn snake, one iguana, whatever, they need to have a U.S. ARC membership. Um, even talk to some of the fish people and the bird people. They probably need to ch- chip in also. U.S. ARC is helping fight on their behalf too when it comes to a lot of these things. They really are. So anybody that owns an exotic animal, really, they don't have to own a reptile or an amphibian. They can give to U.S. ARC, uh, and it still goes to help fight for their rights to keep exotic animals. Um, uh, if Robert, we want to get a hold of you. LSReptileRacks.com. Dot com. It's the best way. Yes, get your racks, get your cages. <clears throat> um, if you want to get a hold of us, it is the Reptile Gumbo Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook at gmail.com. Megan. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, Lone Star Snakes. Yep. Uh, Seth, thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Thank you. And thanks for having me. We will see Have you. Time. We will see you in person, like next month, sometime. I'm sure. Nope. Yeah, Maybe this, this month, but uh, I'll see him this weekend. That's true. I'll, I'll see him this weekend. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, uh, that's it for us. We're out. See y'all next week. Seth, hang around while we go. Good night to everybody. Peace. Mm-hmm.